Hashem Hashem Naseh Natsliach, Shiur Torah. Thank you for coming. Bezat Hashem will learn and continue our series of Pirkei Avot. I think we're now up to Pirkei Avot 6. Uh, and uh, Mishnah Zain, Mishnah, the seventh Mishnah of Pirkei Avot, of the first uh, chapter of Pirkei Avot. Last week we covered a couple of Mishnayot. Anyone that missed the Shiur number 5, it was a little bit of action from the crowd. Uh, it's interesting. We talked about the importance of making yourself a rabbi, and I think the uh, the shiur got a lot of views, Baruch Hashem, online, and a lot of people have responded to it. Uh, and uh, Baruch Hashem, no one has actually uh, online, at least anyone that actually watched the shiur, uh, no one sided with the kofel. Uh, no one uh, sided with the uh, with you know, with the people that didn't like it from the beginning. Because they actually listened to what the Torah said instead of just assumed. And this is actually one of the things that we try to teach during this whole series of Musar. Is that you can never assume anything. You know, if you want to know an answer, you have to ask. If you want to know the truth, you have to seek it. You know, as Hashem says in uh, the book of Deuteronomy... If you look for me, you'll find me. If you look for me with all of your heart, all of your soul. Meaning that Hashem is already telling you that if you actually want an answer, you have to show that you want it. You can't just assume you know everything. At the same token, I'm seeing a lot of people that have emailed me and, uh, and texted me and so on and contacted me after that shiur that they see the problems that we mentioned in the shiur in their own communities, and sometimes even in their own household, where somebody is uh, worshipping a rabbi, or uh, you know, turning their rabbi into a god, or into a mashiach, or into something that's uh, beyond the norm, um, and uh, completely ignoring the Torah that that rabbi actually taught. Because if you ask any real rabbi, no one is ever going to say that uh, they're a mashiach, or they're uh, anything uh, even remotely close to a mashiach. Rabbi is there to teach you, He's there to guide you. Uh, he's there to tell you how much of the prescription medicine you have to take, what Torah to learn, what's the right fit for you, what's the wrong fit for you. Uh, and I think that that's one of the things that's commonly misunderstood uh, in today's world. And actually, we learned from last week's parasha, uh, Parashat Lech Lecha, we have the story of Abraham Avinu and Lot, where on one end, Lot had the merit of being next to one of the most righteous people that ever existed, Avram Avinu. But then Lot decides to leave and go to Sodom, go to Sodom. And he becomes a judge over there. And he's mentioned again in this week's parasha, parashat Veira. Veira elav Adonai be'elone mamre ve'u yoshev petach ha'oel kechom ayom. Hashem appeared to him, meaning to Avram, in the plains of Mamre, while he was sitting at the entrance of the tent in the heat of the day. This is talking about how Avram Avinu, after doing the circumcision, after doing the Brit Milah, he was sitting at the entrance of his, uh, of his tent, looking for guests, despite the fact that it was the third day after his Brit Milah, which... For anyone who's had a Brit Milah as an adult, knows that that is the most difficult time. It's the most painful time. So, Avram Avinu, despite having a huge amount of pain, 
this, you know, he's not exactly a uh, eight days old baby that's not going to remember it. He is looking for guests. So we see from here, just from the first verse of this week's parasha, just the level of righteousness and chesed that Avraham Avinu was accustomed to and how he trained himself and pretty much it became part of his DNA to welcome guests, to do chesed, because he figured that by doing chesed for Hashem's creations, he's doing chesed for Hashem. So Lot had an opportunity to grow up with him, had an opportunity to be chavruta with him, had an opportunity to have him as his rav, he was his rabbi. So how does Lot one day decide, okay, you know what, not only am I going to leave my rabbi, but I'm going to go be the judge of the worst place on earth. Sodom. This is insanity. This is despicable. What kind of, what would you learn? Torah upside down. What would you learn for, for all these years? And this is unfortunately what happens when sometimes the student gets ahead of himself and figures, you know what? I learned a couple of Gemarot. I learned a couple of Parashot. I'm already religious for three years, Rabbi. Three years I'm keeping Shabbat. Three years I've been watching my bleat. I don't think I need a rabbi anymore. I read the books, I don't need it anymore. He thinks he already knows as much as the rabbi. He starts giving the rabbi different... Oh, rabbi, uh, did you see this chidush? Start sending him material. Start sending him information. Hey, rabbi, did you know the answer to this one? Starts ask, testing his rabbi. Forgetting where the knowledge came from originally. And this is actually what happened with J.C. Penny, where J.C. Penny thought that he was as big as his rabbi, Yeshua ben Pachia, one of the Tanas, one of the holy Tanas that ever lived. And this is what's happened several times throughout history, where the student thinks that after they learned a few years, they know more than the teacher. They figured they learned three years. Pretty much they learned everything that the rabbi said. I hear this a lot, unfortunately, with people that uh, tell me, for example, they start listening to me or they start listening to another rabbi, whatever way they contact me and they say, oh, no, listen, I've already listened to all of Rabbi Mizrahi's lectures. Right away, I know the guy's a liar. Right away, right away. First sentence, he says, I already listened to all of Rabbi Mizrahi's lectures. I already know he's a liar. There's no way that you listen to 5,000 lectures. There's no way. I listen to many. I listen to probably 1,500, 2,000 of his lectures. And I could tell you that if you actually listen to the lectures, the questions you have wouldn't be, you wouldn't have them. You wouldn't have those questions. You're asking me, uh, you know, why did, uh, you know, why does Hashem uh, punish the righteous and, uh, and it looks like the Hashem punishes the righteous and gives a, uh, you know, uh, benefit to the wicked. You ask him very basic questions. He covered it in CD number one, CD number two, CD number three, CD number four, CD number five. Covered it in every single shiur. How you still asking that question? People come to me. Oh no, no! I watched all of his lectures. I, I watched all of it. Okay, so how come you still act like an animal? How come you still not modest? How come you still don't keep Shabbat? How come you still keep half the Shabbat? How come you don't know anything yet? What'd you watch? What'd you put it in the background, like a television commercial? What'd you do? So people have to get ahead of themselves, or stop getting ahead of themselves, and realize there's a lot of Torah. Baruch Hashem, Rabbi Mizrahi has been doing it for over 22 years. 
There's thousands of lectures. Maybe you're going to hear a couple of jokes or a couple of stories repeated because there's so many lectures. But in general, if you specifically target certain lectures, you're going to find new material to no end. If you actually listen to a few hundred lectures, by then already you're a complete Baal Tshuva, already for a couple of years, and you're very strong. If you've listened to a thousand, fifteen hundred lectures, then you should, my friend, you should be doing Kiruv already. If you listen to all of his lectures, you definitely should not be coming to me with questions. So stop saying that you listen to all the lectures because it makes you look like a fool. You do not listen to all of his lectures. It looks like you did, and it feels like you did, because you've been listening to him for a year or two years, but 4,000 lectures is a lot of, is a lot of time. Uh, same thing with mine. I mean, I only have a few hundred lectures, and uh, the reality of it is, for anyone, I mean, only people that have started with me from the beginning, you know, really listen to all of them. And Baruch Hashem, we try really, really hard to cover new information every single time. New stories, new information, new everything. What's the point of what I'm trying to say here? The key is that you have to understand, you learned three years, your rabbi already learned for longer. So let's say, you know, if your rabbi already learned for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, before you came to him, he already learned 10, 15 years, 20 years, 30 years, whatever he learned. So you came after he's already doing it for 15 years, let's say. So you learned 3 years. Great. But now he learned 18 years. He also grew. You weren't the only one that grew. The world didn't stop because you did tshuva. And as a matter of fact, his growth... If he's a Talmud Chacham, is much more drastic than yours. Much more drastic, because with Torah, there's a lot of Siat Nishmai, somebody that's doing Zikwe Rabim, someone that's actually helping people do Tshuva, someone that's actually really into it, they're, they're, uh, the growth only grows itself. It's a, it expands drastically. So, you learn three years, great, Chazaku Baruch, but you can't say you know more than your Rabbi. You know, and that's, that's one of the mistakes that people make. They think that, oh, no, no, I already learned everything that this rabbi said. Let me go on my own. And it's a very, very big mistake, and I have seen it a couple of times, unfortunately, even with my own students. You know, my own students. I had one guy that, uh, you know, he's, uh, came here, Baruch Hashem, turned from a kofel to a Baal Shuvah, Chazaku Baruch, everything was great. But then he decided after about a year that uh, it's time for him to go and leave work, leave the business world, and go to the call at 100%. Theoretically, it sounds terrific. Theoretically, I would like every single one of my students to go to a call, learn 24 hours a day, become the next uh, Tana. I had Moshe Rabbeinu send me uh, messages from Shemaim telling me, wow. Your, uh, all of your students are becoming like Rabbi Akiva students. But in reality, that's not reality. Why? Because it's not, being a Avrech is not a fit for everyone. Some people yes, some people no. So, for example, with him, maybe he could potentially be one. In my opinion, he took it too fast. Because in order to be an avrech, it's not just about going to a place and learning just because you like learning. Who doesn't like learning? Once you have a little bit of taste of Torah, of course you're going to like learning. It's beautiful, it's tasty, it's amazing, it's delicious, it's a, uh, it's, it's a high 24 hours a day. Of course you're going to want to learn. But when you have a family, you have kids, you have responsibilities, 
And all of a sudden you just decide to pick up and leave everything and you're going to depend on a couple of thousand dollars that you have in the bank. You're going to put yourself into a test that at that point you can't stand. At that point you're not going to be able to withstand that test unless there's a major miracle and we're not allowed to depend on miracles. So this is where you're supposed to ask your rabbi, listen, what do you think? You know, when, when my opinion was asked, I told him, no, I think you should learn part of the time, half the day, and study and uh, work the other half of the day. Not just go 100% because you're not ready for it. It'll save you the headaches and the Munah battle that you're going to have to deal with when, you know, later on. He goes, no, no, but I have money. Yeah, of course. Right now it sounds great. Right now you have money in the bank. Right now you're excited about going to learn. Right now your wife did tshuva also. Right now everything is fantastic. Right now you're like at La La Land. Great. It's not going to be like that when you run out of money. It's not going to be like that when you're a month away from running out of money. What are you going to do? And the problem is when you don't follow a slow and steady system, you put yourself at risk to chas v'shalom, leave everything. But one day you have the, te- the emunah battle, you have an emunah test, Hashem says, okay, you know what, you took the chance. You want the test, David HaMelech, greatest, one of the greatest people that ever lived. The fourth wheel in Hashem's Merkava. Ask Hashem for a test. Gemara Masechet Sanhedrin. How come I'm not, uh, how come Am Yisrael doesn't say, Bnei Avraham, Yitzchak, Yaakov, and David. So he says to Hashem. Hashem says to him, it's because I tested them, but I didn't test you. So test me, Hashem. He says, I'm going to do, Hashem says to him, I'm going to test you, and I'm going to do something with you I didn't do with them. What's that? I'm going to tell you I'm going to test you. They didn't know ahead of time they were being tested. So I'm giving you a heads up, but you're still not going to pass. You're still not going to pass. Kabbalah says that some, you know, that they, uh, David Amir did not sin, and as a matter of fact, failed the test intentionally, but nonetheless, a test was had and a test was failed. So somebody you know, wants to go up a level, great, eventually the test is going to come. Can you pass it? It's not a shame you can. But if you're not really prepared 100%, if you don't have the level of emunah that's necessary, you're putting yourself at risk. And what happens is, Hashem gives you the test, you don't pass the test, and you think, ah, you know what, since I've failed this test, I'm probably going to fail the other test, and the other test, and Yetzirah gets into your head, and Hashem Yerachem. So it's very, very important to understand that the rabbi is not just there to give you a shield Torah once a week and you know say hi if you have a you know or send him a text question once in a while. A rabbi is supposed to be there for you to ask him some of the most important and sensitive issues before you make any decision, before you do anything. You have to make sure that you go to your rabbi and you ask him what's what are you going to do? Because if you use your rabbi then you're going to have the right direction. You don't use your rabbi. Some people, even in this generation, are saying that if, if somebody doesn't have a rabbi, it's better they don't do tshuva. To that extent. Why? Because at least when they, uh, when they didn't know anything, 
They weren't desecrating Hashem's name on purpose. But when they did tshuva, started keeping Shabbat, and then started, stopped listening to their rabbi, they start telling people, Alachot, no, no, Alachadis, Alachadis. I heard this one kid when I was in Israel. Cute kid, but yeah, he has to, have a, has to get himself a rabbi. He heard, or I don't know, maybe wherever, wherever he heard this thing, it's completely wrong. He said, you know, I heard from Rav, uh, you know, the Rav Kanievsky wrote an alakha. Anyone that has an iPhone has no share of the world to come. It's complete nonsense. Rav Kanievsky didn't say that. It's number one. Number two, it's not default if you have a smartphone. It's obviously if you're going to spend any time, whether it's on your phone, your computer, or in any other way, looking at pornography and disgusting things, then of course you have no share of the world to come. You don't need to have Kanievsky to tell you that. But just because you have a phone, you have no share of the world to come, this is demented. There's no halakha that was passed that way. You didn't see, you, Moses didn't have a halakha like that. But people just make up stuff. They make up stuff. So when they don't have direction, they start making up things. They hear something on the internet. They hear something from somebody that's walking around with a, with a kippah and that's uh, just did you about three weeks ago. And they're like, oh yeah, yeah, what he said is like Moshe from Al Sinai. Relax, go to your rabbi, verify, look at the books. Where does it say it? Enough with the hearsay and the nonsense of this guy said this and this guy said that. Everyone's a Mashiach all of a sudden. Enough. Or everybody wants to be a Rashi. All of a sudden, everybody has a Chidush. Everybody wants to be Rashi. Oh, no, no, this is what it means. Look, the Gimatria of this and the Gimatria of that. First of all, we don't make Allah through Gimatria. Second of all, as the Rambam says, Gimatria is a way to stimulate the brain. It's not a, uh, you know, we have to... We don't make uh, life and death sentences based on gematria. Like all this thing that's been happening over the last month, everybody keeps sending the same text of how Donald Trump is the Mashiach because the gematria of Donald Trump is, I don't know, 400 something. And uh, that's the same thing as Mashiach and Hillary's Amalek. Enough with the nonsense. Enough. He's not the Mashiach. He can't be the Mashiach because that's what the Torah says. Mashiach has to be Jewish. And not only Jewish, has to be a natural born Jew. And not only a natural born Jew, has to be from the seed of David. Enough. And also, it also says in the book of Jeremiah and several other places, and also in the, in, uh, in the Torah itself, Cursed is the man that depends on man. Meaning, don't put so much trust in... Not Donald Trump, and not Hillary, and not Billary, and not this one, and not that one, not anyone. The only thing you can trust is Hashem. That's it. Everybody's spending so much energy about the uh, politics all of a sudden. Everybody became a, a newscaster. Everybody's a CNN anchor. You know, oh yeah, what do you think of this? What do I care? What do I care about all these things? Hashem runs the show. You haven't gotten it yet? Hashem runs the show. Hashem wanted him to win, he won. Hashem wants him to be Amalek, he'll be Amalek too. Whatever Hashem wants will happen. He could be good, he could be bad, who knows. One day everybody was a fan. The next day, I think it was today or yesterday, somebody told me that one of his main advent, uh, advisors is like a Ku Klux Klan person. Like a mamash, like an anti-Semite, like a, notor- a notable anti-Semite. The point is that Hashem is showing you that if he wants to do something, he'll do something, whether it's obvious or not obvious. Don't rely on men. Don't depend on them. Only depend on Hashem. And in order for you 
to understand what Hashem says, you need some guidance. Everyone needs a rabbi. I have a rabbi, I actually have two rabbis. Rabbi Mizrahi has rabbis. My rabbis have rabbis. Everyone has a rabbi. You don't have a rabbi, you're going to have a very, very hard time. You have a rabbi, but you don't listen to him, that means you don't have a rabbi. And you're going to make stupid moves, and you're going to put yourself at risk for no reason. For much, no reason. So understand that having this rabbi is very, very critical. And also, to finalize this point, is that this is also the uh, main thing that I heard with the, uh, with the people that told me that, yes, the point that we made about Shlom Bayit, how people go to the uh, grave of uh, Rabbi Nachman from Breslev and putting their Shlom Bayit on the line. And apparently this is, not a, this is not a new insight that I created. This is reality. A lot of people have heard this before, and I heard it again after I said it, that uh, many of the wives are very, very unhappy that their husbands are going to this gravesite and praying while leaving their family behind on Rosh Hashanah, the main time that they have to spend together. So again, you may think that going there is a mitzvah. You may think it's going there and praying with 30,000, 40,000 Jews is a mitzvah, um, being next to a righteous uh, tzaddik that died is a mitzvah. You may think that, but any real rabbi will tell you it's not. Why? Because if your wife is unhappy, then you're making a huge sin. And we learn here in this week's parasha, when... In chapter 18, verse 12, after the Malachim, the angels, come to Avram and tell him, this time next year you're going to have a son. It says, V'titzchak sara bekirba le'emo achre beloti ha'ita li edna ve'adoni zaken. ויאמר אדוני אל אברהם למה זה צחקה שרה לאמור האף אמנם אלד ואני זקנתי and Sarah laughed at herself saying after I have withered shall I again have a delicate skin and my husband is old Sarah is saying how am I going to have a son she's laughing to herself how am I going to have a son I'm old now and my husband's old so Hashem said to Avraham why is it that Sarah laughed saying shall I in truth bear a child Though I have aged, is anything beyond Hashem? So here you see, Hashem actually changed the truth. Hashem changed what Sarah said. Sarah didn't say, I'm old. Sarah said, my husband's old. So what happened? Hashem forgot. What happened? So Hashem is telling Avram, Avram, your wife says that She's old. Why? Because Hashem knows, as the Creator knows His creation, that if He tells the husband, if He tells Avram, listen, by the way, your uh, wife said that you're old. Avram's going to take it to heart. He's not going to like it. Well, my wife thinks I'm old. Maybe she doesn't like me anymore. Maybe she's going to look for somebody else. A guy is always going to be jealous. He'd be 150 years old, still going to be jealous. Anyone that loves his wife has to be jealous. Obviously, if you're righteous, you have a certain, you know, you contain this jealousy. But that's also the reason why a 
righteous husband will never let his wife walk around like a prostitute, half naked and all that stuff. Never. Why, why did you want? Why do you want to share your diamond with the rest of the world? For what? What benefit do you get out of it? That everybody has in their mind pictures of your wife naked. This is what you want in your life. Forget the panasa. People thinking about your wife naked. There's something wrong with you if you actually like that. Forget the panasa. Forget all the schoolwork. Forget all that stuff. There's another guy in the world that thinks of your wife. That is some, there's something wrong with you if you're okay with that. There's mama something wrong with you. So Avraham here is getting news from Hashem that his wife thinks that she's old. But she didn't say that. She said he's old. But Hashem is telling him that he changed the truth. In essence, we're only allowed to say because that's what happened. It's only written in the Torah. Hashem lied. He changed the truth. For what? For the purpose of Shlom Bait. Because if he would have told... Avraham, that his wife thinks he's old, Avraham could be upset at his wife and it could create Shlombayit issues. That's how important Shlombayit is. Hashem himself wrote a few verses in the Torah. It's not a theory. It's not like some pirush. It's not some like uh, commentary. This is what's written here. Chapter uh, 18, verse 12 and 13. Literal Torah. You don't need Rashi, you don't need me, you don't need anything. You read it yourself. This is what it says. So if Hashem decided that Shlom Bayit is so important that He is okay with signing off His name with something different from the truth, you think that it's okay for anybody to go to some grave or some anywhere and put His Shlom Bayit on the line even for a second? Even for a half a second? You think this tzaddik in Uman where his body is buried, you think he wants you to put your Shlom Bayit on the line? You think the Rebbe from Lubavitch thinks wants you to put your Olam Abba on the line by calling him Mashiach? By calling him God? By calling him whatever he's not? It's complete nonsense. People have to start learning Torah from the sages, from Hashem Barach, and stop making up this craziness that they're making up because it's mamash not doing anybody any good. So, with that being said, we see that this week's parasha already teaches us a very, very important life lesson. Number one, if you want to have the blessing of Hashem in your life, you must have Shlom Bayit. Because Hashem Himself obviously put His name on the line for it. And also we talked about last week how in the, uh, the act of Sotah, Hashem allows, allowed us to erase his name for the sake of Shlom Bayit. So now we're going to continue with Mishnah, Mishnah Avot Zayin, or Mishnah Avot 7. And it says, Nitaya Arbeli Omer, Archek Mishachen Ra, Ve'al Titchaber L'Rasha, Ve'al Titchayesh Min HaPuranut. Nitaya Arbel says, Distance yourself from a bad neighbor, do not associate with a wicked person and do not despair of retribution. So Netayah Arbeli was one of the Tanaim, one of the major sages, one of the leaders 
And he's telling you some things that seem like common sense. It doesn't seem like one. This is going to be in Pirkei Avot. This is supposed to be the foundation of wisdom. Distance yourself from a bad neighbor. You need Nitayar Beli, Tana that can revive the dead to tell you to go stay away from a bad neighbor. Don't associate with a wicked person. It's, okay, I got it. But then we see the real meaning here. It says, do not despair of retribution. We see that what he's saying here doesn't necessarily seem like what it seems like. Meaning there's more than meets the eye. So first and foremost, distance yourself from a bad neighbor. He's not talking about a guy that plays music at 3 o'clock in the morning. He's not talking about a guy that throws tomatoes off out of his porch every time you, uh, you, know, you walk under his balcony. Or parks in your parking lot. He's not talking about that. It could be, but it's not specific to that. He's talking about Ra. Ra means wicked against Hashem. Wicked against Hashem. Someone that is going against Hashem. Not necessarily someone that's just going against you. Someone just may dislike you. But that's not necessarily what he's talking about here. This has to be a general statement for everyone. He's talking about someone that's against Hashem. So we learn here in this week's parasha that Lot went from having one of the giants of all generations of Ramavino as, as rabbi to going to Sodom full of bad neighbors. How could it be? What happened? Lot learned a few years with Avram. Decided, you know what? I know just as much as Avram. I'm already learning with him for 20 years, 30 years. I know enough. Decided to be his own rabbi. Said, listen. You have an alachav, how your, uh, your tzon, your sheep, your cattle, eat on your side, and mine on my side, but just in case there may be, uh, my cattle will eat your grass, but there's no guarantee that if my cattle go on your side, they're going to eat your grass. Maybe they're just going to walk around. She looked for a kula. He looked for a leniency in alacha. You know, there's a lot of people that learn alacha specifically to look for leniencies. To look for loopholes. Oh yeah, you can do this. If you do this in a different way, in a shita, then it's okay. If you light the light with your elbow on Shabbat, you're allowed. No, not allowed. If it's by accident, it's less of a chuma. If you have to, it's a lot more to that uh, to that permission than it says. But somewhere it's looking for a leniency. It's going to find it. The Ramban Nachmanites calls those people Naval Birshuta Torah, despicable person with permission of the Torah. Me and this person specifically learn. Just to look for leniencies. And this is exactly what Lot did. Lot looked for leniencies. He goes, listen, just because my sheep goes on your side doesn't mean they're going to eat it. So let them go. But then we found out that they did eat. Yeah, but you have proof. You see them. How do you know it's your grass? Maybe they carried it from there. He's looking for excuses. So Abraham says, you go right, I'll go left. Go your direction, I'll go my direction. So he becomes his own rabbi. He leaves his rabbi. He thinks he knows more than his rabbi. Shem what happens? He goes to Sodom. Becomes a rabbi over there. He's a judge over there. But what judge? What kind of judge he is? He judge on cases where it shouldn't even be a case in the first place. 
somebody brings a neighbor, somebody brings a uh, guest, if the person is tall, they give him a short bed. If the person is uh, short, they give him a long bed. Why? What's the what's the difference? If it's a because lo- you're not allowed to bring guests, but if you already brought a guest, we're gonna torture that person specially in Sodom. What are they gonna do? If he's tall, now that we're gonna give him a short bed, if he had the audacity to come visit us and ask for, for tzedakah, ask for anything, we're gonna give him a short bed, and whatever body part sticks off the bed, we're gonna cut. Now, what about if he's short? You're gonna make sure bed; it's extra comfortable. No, 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 no. We're gonna stretch him out. To reach both sides, which means they're going to kill him. And Lot himself thought that this was a good idea to go and be a judge over there. He goes, no, 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 make new rules or make new things. What ends up happening? His daughter brings a guest, and they say, "Oh, not brings a guest. She gives staka. She gives staka to a homeless person, one of his daughters. So what do they do? So, oh, you're not allowed to give staka. Not allowed to give staka. So what do they do? They take a bunch of honey and they put it all over our body. And they release the bees. And the bees kill her from all the stinging. And that's why there's a, one of the verses says, Vaitzak. There's a scream. There's a scream in Sodom. Who's the scream from? Lot's daughter. He thought that he could be a rabbi over there. Because his rabbi wasn't good enough for him anymore. You understand? So Nitai Arbelio says, Archek Mishachen Ra. Distance yourself from these bad neighbors. Distance yourself from these bad neighbors for yourself, for your own good. The Rambam, in Ilchot Deot, chapter 6, 1, says there's an, there's an obligation. It says there's an obligation for, for a person to move. If his neighborhood, if his community is full of reshaim, is full of wicked people, full of, you know, uh, people that are going against the Torah, not interested in tshuva, not interested in anything relevant to the Torah, you're obligated to move, you're not allowed to live there. So then the next she'elah is, the next question is, okay, what if there's, every place is like that. I live in, uh, I live in uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, I go to... Smith Street, it's Sodom and Gomorrah. I go to Park Street, it's Sodom and Gomorrah. It's everything is Sodom and Gomorrah. What happens? I'm in Manhattan. What do I do? Rambam says, move to the desert. Your neighbor should be the scorpion and the snake. It's alakha. It's not like a, uh, uh, some uh, weird uh, midrash that no one's ever heard of that I found myself. It's alakha. He says, move to the desert. Scorpion and the snake are better neighbors than Rasha. Because at least if they kill you, they kill your, only your body. Whereas the Rasha is going to kill your soul forever, Shem Yerachim. So now you have to understand the significance of getting away from this. This is why also it says, Archek mishachen ra, velo itrachek. Archek means remove yourself from the bad neighbor. Technically it should say, itrachek, which means distance yourself. Go live somewhere else. Oh, achek means you can't even be friends with them. You have a shopper, you have a person that's an atheist, no interest in tshuva, no interest in nothing, goes against the Torah openly, 
has no uh, mocks the Torah, makes fun of things. Oh, look at this rabbi, look what he said. <laughs> like one of these idiots on YouTube, has a YouTube channel with 300,000 followers, making fun of the Torah. Making fun of this. His whole life is just making fun of the Torah. His whole life. They're going to use all the, all the content that he used as nice introduction to his Gehenom. When he gets there and he finds out that it's true. The Torah is real. But you have some fortunately, you have many people like that in our generation. A lot of people make fun of the Torah. Not necessarily everybody has a YouTube channel. But as many people that are putting yourself as a, in such, such a bad way where they become rabin, they become, they cause other people to sin. And this is the essence of a Shachen Ra. A Shachen Ra is not just someone that is just bad by himself and he's just like sitting in his home, he just smokes on Shabbat by himself. Shachen Ra is talking about this one, this person is a Rasha. This person makes other people sin. He brings everybody else to have a hookah party on Shabbat afternoon. This is the person that invites everybody to the strip club. This is the person that has the Super Bowl party on the same day that there is a Shi'ul Torah. Knowing that all of those people are going to miss the Shi'ul Torah, but now who cares? Put God on hold. Go tomorrow. Go next week. This is a Machti Rabim. And these people are mamash miskenim. And the Rambam says, and Alachai says, you're not allowed to be friends with them. You have to do exactly what it said in last week's parasha. Lech lecha, move, cut yourself off. Cut yourself off. You cannot, you cannot stay connected to these people. And that's why it says, Al titchaber l'rasha. Do not associate it with the wicked person. Now obviously, titchaber means connect to him. Now if you're in a business of doing kiyuv, this makes it very, very difficult. If you have family, like pretty much everyone in Am Yisrael, that has people that are secular in your family, friends that are secular, people you care about that are secular, this is a very, very critical thing to listen to. Al titchaber la'asha. What does it mean, al titchaber? Don't be so connected to them. Yes, you're allowed to come in, teach, leave. But don't start having barbecues on a daily basis. The guy is at your house. Sometimes he's bringing pigs. Sometimes he's bringing monkeys. Sometimes he's bringing this. And you make a separate side of barbecue. Let him eat this tarif. No, no, no. You come to our house for Shabbat. You become Shomer Shabbat. You don't drive to my house. And then drive home on Shabbat. You want to come to my house, keep Shabbat. Stay in my house for Shabbat. Can't stay for Shabbat. Don't bring that stuff to my house. Why? Why don't bring that stuff to my house? Why don't drive to my house on Shabbat and go home on Shabbat? Because I have little kids. Little kids, my little kids, it's a dikim. They don't know what a chiloni is. They don't know what a secular person is. They see somebody driving on Shabbat that I'm honoring and saying, Ah, look, this is my friend Svika, this is Shmuli, and this is Danny. They all came to celebrate Shabbat with us and after we talk and we schmooze and we talk about Avraham Avinu and Moshe Rabbeinu and all these wonderful things and everybody smiles and everybody eats and everybody celebrates okay, good night everybody and they go and the little kids see him from the window tick, 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 tick turn the car and they drive Abba what happened to Avraham Avinu and Moshe Rabbeinu? 
They said, don't drive on Shabbat. Why is uh, Danny and Shmuley and Tzvika driving? What are you going to say to them? No, they don't know? What are you going to tell them? The kid's not going to understand they don't know. You just talked about Moshe Rabbeinu. It seemed like they knew fine. So you can't connect to them to such an extent that you let them sin inside your house. Listen, I understand it's difficult. Some even say, listen, if you can invite them the first time and they drive the next time, don't let them. Personally, I don't think you should let them sin at all, ever. Because if it's okay once, why is it not okay twice? If it's okay for him to drive on Shabbat for one year, why is it not okay for him to drive for two years? And then three years and four years and five years and ten years. It's either true or it's not. The fact that he's not willing to accept it right away and keep Shabbat right away, I understand. But, you have to let him know that, listen, when you're here, when you're in my house, you have to keep it. Just like if you go to a house where it's part of the etiquette of the house to take off your shoes when you come in, what do you do? You take off your shoes. If it's part of the etiquette of the house to take off your hat when you come in, what do you do? You take off your hat. You do what is the custom in the place that you go. There's no different than anything else. You want to go to the house for Shabbat, go to the house for Shabbat. But to have these people that are completely anti-Torah over your house and allowing them to desecrate Shabbat openly like that is going to create problems in your life. It's going to create problems in your life. And you have to, you have to really be strict with it, even though it may mean that you're going to have less guests for Shabbat. Rather have less guests for Shabbat than people that are going to taint your kids and tell your kids that it's okay to drive on Shabbat and uh, the car doesn't blow up. When you turn it on on Shabbat. Because really all you have to stand on with little kids, this is one of the things that people don't understand. With little kids, if you want kids to stick to Judaism, to stick to Torah, without letting go, without, sac- without and, you know, just Ramah sticking to it, you have only two things to hold on to. One, reward them. Give them a reward. Kid wore a keeper the whole week, give them a candy. Give them a little, a little story. Give them a high five. Wear a tzitzit, give them a little story. Give them a little high five. Give them candy. Give them something. Give Reward him for something. He learned his Mishnayot. He learned his Chumash. He did his homework. Give him some reward. That's one thing you have to stand on. Chazal says this. It's not my rules. Chazal says you must reward them. This is in the days of Chazal. It's not just days of now. Days of now, Shem Yechen, you should probably give him a plane. But obviously you have to give rewards with, uh, with taste, with tact. You can't give the kid a plane every week. Give him a candy, give him something small. He'll also appreciate something small much more than he will if you buy him a video game every week and ruin him. So that's number one. You want to educate your kid, you want him to, to want to do the mitzvah, you have to entice him with that. The second thing is, which is going to be a surprise to some people, is fear. Scare him to death. God doesn't like when people take off their kippah. God doesn't like people who don't do their homework. God, and you have to let them know. The fear of God, you tell them one time to a kid, they'll listen forever. They'll listen forever, I'm telling you. I know this for myself, when I was a little kid, even though we didn't keep any, you know, much mitzvot, when we were, I was 10 years old, we kept a few things, we went to a uh, religious uh, school, but as soon as we landed in America, we became green. Didn't keep anything. 
except holidays and, you know, basic. In my opinion, we didn't keep much, but whatever. Some people may consider it mesolti. You know, just like uh, part of the stuff. In my opinion, based on what I know today, we kept nothing. But it doesn't make a difference. The point is, is that we came in, we keep some holidays, kosher whenever it's convenient. But what did I make sure to do my whole life? No matter what. doesn't matter if I'm dating a non-Jew. doesn't matter if I'm uh, doing whatever. doesn't matter if I'm eating taref. doesn't matter anything. What am I doing my whole life? There's two things I did my whole life. One, every time I have a piece of paper, always put Bezat Hashem on top right. Top right corner of the, of the paper. Anytime I write anything on a piece of paper, always had Bezat Hashem. The, the bet and the hay. And second thing is, Sheshmaisa before I go to sleep. Why? Because my mom told me this is what God wants. When I was a little kid, said, listen, or my teacher told me about Bezrat Hashem, and my mom told me about Shema It's good to say before you go to sleep. God wants it. God is almighty. God is great. God is everything. Nobody told me God uh, punishes people who don't keep Shabbat. People told me, God wants you to say Shema before you go to sleep. God wants you to put His name on a piece of paper. Okay, so that's what I did. You tell little kids, this is what God said. You put the fear of God in them, they'll do it. And that's the only thing you have to hold on to until they have enough Torah knowledge that they learn in school, Bezat Hashem, and at home, that it's become part of them and they want to do it. But before you get to Ava, before you get to love of Hashem and desire to do His will, you have to have Yira. You have to have fear. There's no Ava without Yira. So this is also another reason why it's very, very dangerous to have Rishayim in your life. If you have a community full of Rishayim, full of people that are wicked, full of people that are against the Torah, they could ruin your kids. This is also why you unfortunately hear sometimes that uh, rabbis that you know move to new communities that are full of secular people, trying to help them do tshuva. And sometimes their own kids, the rabbi's kids get tainted, get hurt because of this. The kid goes off the derech. Because the rabbi can't be with his kids all day. You know, he has the community, he has to learn, he has this, he has a lot of things to do. So his own kid's going to grow up. He's going to play, who's going to play with? He's going to play with the secular kids. He sees them smoking, he wants to smoke. He, says that he sees them drinking, he wants to drink. He sees this, he, so that's what happens. So you... So it's, it's a very, very big problem. It's a very, very big problem. And uh, it's very dangerous to be in a place like that. It's better to not go uh, in, in most cases. But it's also Mesirut Nefesh. The Rabbi Bezal Hashem will have enough Siat Lishmai that his kids do tshuva. But nonetheless, the point is that the uh, Mishnah here is telling you that when you are next to, connected to Rishayim, you are going to be infected by it. You're going to be infected by it. Now, in the Gemara, Masechet Baba Batra, page 16a, it says, the Satan is the Yetzara, and Yetzara is the Malach Meaning, Oh, Satan has these three names. 
He's the Satan, he's the Yetzirah, he's the Malach HaMavet. Okay, great, he has three names. There's another Gemara that says he has seven names. Each one of the forefathers, Moshe Rabbeinu, Avraham, Yitzhak, Yaakov, everybody gave him his own name. One of them, I think it was Moshe Rabbeinu, called him Ra, meaning evil. Here yeah, the Gemara is a different Gemara. It says, he's these three, he has these three different positions. Satan, Yetzirah, Malach HaMavet. Okay, great. And this needs to be part of the old Torah. I can't just call him one name. What do you need three names for? He's trying to teach you here. Satan, Yetzirah, and Malach HaMavet are three different positions. They're just like this Rasha that's gonna, that you're going to connect to. If you're going to connect to this Rasha, it's going to be the same thing. Meaning, the Satan first tells you Make a sin, make a sin. Make a sin. Go with this girl. Go waste seed. Go turn on the phone on Shabbat. Go eat a little burger, it's not kosher. Go eat a pizza, it's dairy, don't worry about it. It doesn't have to be kosher. That rabbi is a machmil, he's a stringent rabbi. It's only cheese. Go, go make a little sin, what's the big deal? That's the etzerah. So you make the sin. Now you create yourself a demon. The Gemara says, every time somebody makes a mitzvah, they make themselves an angel that's going to fight for them in Shemaim. Every time they make a sin, they make themselves a demon. Demon is going to fight for, against them on Shemaim. So now this demon is going to tell you, listen, I'm running the show here now. You made one sin. You don't really have any angels fighting for you because you didn't make any mitzvot. You're only making sins. It's me and 800 million other sins that you created last week from wasting seed. So we're going to influence you to make more sins. Making more sins now. Continuing with the girl. Continuing with this, continuing with that, and then, so that's the Satan. Then comes the Malachamavit. Malachamavit, that's it, it's over. Goes to Shemaim, says, Listen, this person wasted seeds, this person desecrated Shabbat, Chilul Hashem, all these things, Gzaldimavit. He prosecutes against you. The same one that gave you the insight, the idea, the influence to sin is going to fight is going to fight against you. That's the same thing as the Rasha. It's the same thing as your bad neighbor. Your bad neighbor, your friend, is telling you, come on, let's go to a strip club together. Let's go to a bar together, Shemirachem. Let's go watch a movie together and do Bitu Torah. Waste Torah time, go watch some stupid movie for three hours. Let's go to a casino and steal money from people. In a legal way. Let's go do all this. You think he's going to fight for you in, uh, in the Betin of Shemaim? No. He's going to tell him, no, no, no. It's his fault. I just told him he can go. I didn't tell him. To, I didn't force him. I didn't put a gun to his head. I didn't put a gun to his head. You think he's going to want to go to Gainon for you? Nobody wants to go and go to Gainon for anybody. What is he going to do instead? He goes, no, no. Honestly, I just thought that's what he wanted to do. That's why I said it. He's going to blame you. 
Just like the Satan is going to do with every one of the sins that somebody makes. He made you make the sin. He said, no, 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 I didn't make you make the sin. I just gave you an option. I gave you door A, door B. I'm here to test you. You chose door B. That's your problem. My other job is to punish you too. You came to Gehenom, that's my department. I beat up people all day. Welcome to the club. What are you complaining about? You knew what was right and wrong. Yeah, but I had Yetzirah. Okay, great. You had Yetzirah. Should have thought about that then. What are you going to do? Rav Nisim Yagen, Zichet Tzadik Livacha, has some of the most amazing stories. If you listen to his lectures, you read his books. His mama's story, scary. Real story. Says one of his lectures, one of his students, has happened to him. This guy, young uh, Israeli guy, moved to Canada. Moved to Canada from Israel. And he was doing making business there, whatever. And uh, complete nothing. Chiloni keeps nothing, does nothing. His whole life is partying and money and girls and all that, but making sins by himself wasn't enough for him. So he became a Khtiya Rabim. He came, uh, wanted to add somebody to the sin. So he called his uncle from Israel, come, come. Let's have fun. Come visit me. We'll have fun together. So the uncle comes to Canada. And they go have fun. They get drunk, this, that. After the night's over, they drive drunk. And as you would have it, unfortunately, the car goes off the road, smashes into a tree. The uncle dies instantly. But the guy tells the story. He says, you know, he was a gosses. He was like, he was out of it. He says, and I saw... All of a sudden, the Malach HaMavet came and took his soul out of his body. He took his uncle's soul. He saw the Malach HaMavet come, he saw him take the soul out of his uncle's body. And telling him he's coming back for him. Took the soul, went to Shemayim with the soul, now he's coming back to him. And he starts taking his soul and he's screaming, No! And all of a sudden he sees a great light. An angel appears. He says, leave him alone. I'm the angel that was created from the chesed that he made. He gave some tzedakah. And it says, tzedakah tzil mimavit. And Satan says, no. He's a rasha. He's a mechalel shabbat. He goes against Hashem. I'm taking him. And the angel was fighting him. He says, okay, we're going to go to Bedin. They went to Bedin. They took his soul out of his body and went to Bedin of Shemaim. This is not my story. This is the story of Rav Nisim again from the actual person. They go to Bedin of Shemaim. This guy has one good angel on the side and he's got the Satan and all the sins on the other side. And this one tzaddik, one, one staka that he gave, some chesed that he gave, is fighting for him. This one mitzvah he made. He doesn't even know that he made it. And that one mitzvah wins. 
says, listen, you have one, one condition. We bring back your neshama. You say, Shema Yisrael, as soon as you're back in the neshama, and you go to Jerusalem immediately. You leave everything, you go to Jerusalem immediately, you go to Kolin. Go to Yeshiva. Learn Torah the rest of your life. It's the only condition. Or else we're going to come back for you. Comes back. He's in shock. He's in the woods. He sees there's cops everywhere. But he forgets to say Shema Yisrael. The cops see that he's okay. He's got a little blood, but nothing like nothing is crazy. You know, nothing. He's not di- dying or anything. They arrest him. They say, yeah, you probably planned killing your uncle because maybe you want his inheritance. So when they uh, put him in the hospital, cops were surrounding his room. Because as soon as he's okay, they release him, they put him in jail. They were both drunk. They don't know, they don't believe. So then he remembered, oh, wait, wait, he's thinking about the angels. Say Shema Yisrael, say Shema Yisrael, say Shema Yisrael. So he said Shema Yisrael. All of a sudden, he said Shema Yisrael. Everybody leaves. The whole room empties out. The nurses leave. The cops leave. Everybody leaves. For no reason, he doesn't know what happened. Everybody leaves. He decides to get up, get off the bed. He sees that somebody left his passport accessible, grabs his passport, leaves the country, goes to Israel, goes to Yerushalayim, until this day he's in a call. Now he was lucky. He saw the Malach HaMavit and lived to tell the story. How many of us can say we're going to do that? Can we rely on a mitzvot? It depends what kind of mitzvot you have, what kind of averot you have. It depends on a lot of things. The point I'm trying to tell you is that the same averot that we're making are going to prosecute against us. These demons that, you know, we think that we're doing, we're doing ourselves a favor by going against Hashem, go and have fun, go waste seed, go violate Shabbat, go eat non-kosher, go steal, go do all the things against Hashem. We think it's fun. We don't realize those same things that are so-called fun are going to be the prosecutors against us. In the Gemara, it says, Masechet Sota, page 3a, it says, a person does not sin unless... Yes, nichnas bo ruach shtut. Unless he lets in ruach shtut. Ruach shtut means like a uh, foolish, foolish wind, foolishness. Someone doesn't sin unless foolishness was let in. So, the Rambam in Shmona Prakim, uh, Shmona Prakim, I guess it's called eight parts in uh, in English. He says something, Mamash, if you actually understand this, it's Mamash genius. So what is this Ruach Shtut? What is this, uh, you know, someone is uh, making a sin because of foolishness? Come on, yes. needs need, need some more. Okay, foolishness, okay, he's stupid, so that's why he made a sin. He's a fool, so that's why he made a sin. So Rambam says, the natural, inc- the natural purpose of a person is to do the will of Hashem. The only reason why you were created is to do the will of Hashem. That's it. You weren't created to make money, you weren't created to do anything. The only reason you were giving a body is to bring children to the world. But in essence, 
that is to fulfill the will of Hashem also. So he says, when someone is sick, physically sick, they tend to think and feel their senses go off in the opposite direction, where the things that are usually tasty, they don't like, and the things that are disgusting, they tend to like. I can tell you a personal story that's funny. One time, God bless my wife, she wasn't, uh, she wasn't feeling well. And uh, I don't know, a favorite, she likes pizza. So we ordered pizza. And uh, she likes to put toppings on a pizza. And I saw that she's putting a lot more than usual. Okay. And she's eating this pizza. And she's like enjoying it. It's like great. She goes, you should have a, should have a piece, my pizza. You know, anyone that's good wants to share good with someone they love. So she gives me this pizza slice and I take a bite. I'm thinking it's going to be good. So I take like an extra big bite like I haven't eaten in five years. Ah, yeah, yeah. Everything she put was salt. It was the most awful pizza you could ever imagine. I wanted to throw it across the room. Like, what? What did you do with this? And she's like, what? It's delicious, no? <laughs> so that's what happened. When someone's sick, their taste buds are off. Their taste buds are off. She says the same thing goes with someone that has a sick soul. Someone that makes sins. Someone that makes sins. In essence, he's making his soul very sick. Because his soul is pure. So when you add sins to this pure soul, you're dirtying the soul. You're marking the soul with you know, things that are against it. You're making it very sick. You're infecting it with spiritual disease. So now all of a sudden this soul, the Rambam says, is going to desire things that are bad for it. It's going to think that the things that are bad for it are good for it, and the things that are good for it are bad for it. Meaning he's going to think this person that's making sins is going to think that the strip club is good, even though it's bad for him. The girlfriend is good, even though it's bad for it. Going to a mixed wedding is good, even though it's bad for him. Eating not kosher, good, but it's bad for him. All these things are bad, but that's what he desires only. Because his soul is sick. And his taste buds are completely off. And the things you want to tell him, listen, come to Shul Torah. No, it's 9 o'clock, it's late. Yeah, but you go to sleep at 3 o'clock in the morning anyway. If you went to sleep at 9 o'clock, okay, fine, okay, it's too late for you. But you go to sleep at 3 o'clock in the morning anyway. What difference does it make if it's 9 o'clock? It's just, you just woke up at 9. Okay, well, why don't you do feeling today? Nah, it's tough. Ah, I'm not really into it. Why don't you keep Shabbat? No, that's too much for me. All the things you tell him to do something that's good for him, all of a sudden he's like rejecting it like it's poison. It's all the sins that he made, the Rambam says. All the sins that he made. Says here, when people are ill, their senses are confused and they taste the sweet as bitter and the bitter as sweet. They consider things that are pleasurable to be disagreeable and will powerfully desire and will derive pleasure 
They'll actually enjoy these bad things. It's not that they're just doing bad things and they hate them. They're actually, even though their soul is being damaged by it, it's actual poison for their soul to be with the, you know, with, with all of these sins. They think they're enjoying it. So it's just like somebody that's doing crack. Someone is doing crack, he thinks he's enjoying it. Five minutes, ten minutes, an hour, whatever he gets high for. But then, he crashes. They consider things that are pleasurable to be disagreeable, and will powerfully desire and will derive pleasure from the things that will not gratify the healthy at all. Moreover, at times their conduct will be even harmful. Similarly, in an analogy, those with ailments of the soul, the wicked and the unworthy, will consider the undesirable to be good, and the good to be undesirable. For the wicked will seek motives that are in fact evil. And yet because of the infirmity of the spirit, he will deem them to be good. When an ill person becomes aware of his illness, when somebody finally wakes up and realizes, okay, I'm sick. I guess uh, this rash is not just a, uh, I got, just a rash that I got scratched. This rash is shingles, Hashem Yachem. You guys want to know what shingles is? Or you're too young. Let us know. Shingles, okay. Shingles is like chicken pox for older people. But sometimes you get lucky and you're 16 years old like me and you have shingles. And so I had shingles when I was 16. Uh, no doctor could explain why. It's very strange. But um, usually it's for older people that are in their 50s, 60s. It's a very, very dangerous disease. Um... It uh, paralyzes half your body. Well, for me it did. Paralyzed half my body. I had a lot of wonderful tikkunim in my life. What well, didn't have? Oh Hashem, I didn't die. Oh Hashem. So, uh, yeah, I had a lot of interest. I think about it all the time, all the different things that I had in my life. Very interesting life, oh Hashem. Hashem was always, always watching me. It was good. So, it says, an ill person becomes aware of his illness. Somebody realizes, okay, it's not just a rash, it's shingles. Somebody realizes, uh, this is not just a little pimple, it's shemirachem, uh, it's, I don't know, uh, some STD or something. It's not just that. He realizes he's sick. And he does not know the science of medicine. The guy's not a doctor, exactly. He's not a, he's, what does he do? He seeks a physician. He goes to a doctor to instruct him with regard to the course of action to follow. He's sick. Go to the doctor. What do I do, doc? Is the Advil going to cure it or do I need some special shot? Do I need steroids? Do I need this? Do I need antibiotics? What do I do? The physician will warn him against those things that he considers to be pleasant and will force him to take medicine that even though they are bitter and distasteful will cure the body. This will enable him to choose the good in the future and to be repelled by what is truly repulsive. So he is telling you, you go to the doctor, you're sick, you're going to take the, instead of continuing to eat the candy that's killing you, because you think it's candy, you're going to take the medicine that's bitter to you. Because the medicine's going to cure you. Eventually you're going to grow to like the medicine and hate the candy. So what is this analogy like? Similarly, in the analogy, it's proper for those who have spiritual ailments to seek out the wise. 
Same thing for someone that's spiritually sick. He's been sinning his whole life. Finally realized there's a God. Finally realized that in order to have Shalom Bayit, you have to be loyal to your wife. Finally realized if you want success in life, you have to be honest with your biz- in your business. Finally realized that if you want to have good kids, you have to teach them Torah. Finally realized these things. But he knows, hey, listen, well, I'm going to change overnight. So what does he do? Someone that finally realizes that he's sick. He's spiritually sick. He can't stop wasting seed. He can't stop violating Shabbat. He can't stop gambling. He can't, it's hard for him. So what does he do? Seek out the wise who heal souls. Just like there's a doctor for medicine, for your body. There's a doctor for your soul. Same rabbi we talked about last week. Seek out the wise who heal souls, who will warn them against the evils that they consider to be good, and will heal them through the activities that heal the character traits of the soul, as will be explained in the following chapter. So here he's telling you, is that this wise, the person that learned Torah already for a few years, 10 years, 5 years, 2 years, whatever he learned, a lot more than you, he's going to tell you a bunch of things you don't like to hear. He's going to tell you you can't go to the clubs anymore. He's going to tell you you can't be with uh, Samantha and, uh, and Christine. He's going to tell you that you have to leave Mustafa. He's going to tell you that you have to, you know, stop eating shrimp, even though it's your favorite food. He's going to tell you you have to start learning some manners. He's going to tell you you have to stop yelling at people. He's going to tell you things that, naturally, you not only are used to them, you like them. You like going to the casino and playing like a high roller. Everybody gives you kavod, you come in, oh, shh. They start a table for you. This is what happened. I used to go to a casino, they would start a table just for me. I felt like, shh, top of the world. Then I found out that gambling is stealing. Okay, it's not God's will. Can't go gamble anymore. No, how hard it was? Because you enjoy it. It's not like you don't like it. It's not like all of a sudden I don't like gambling. If it was a lot to gamble, I gamble today. But it's not allowed. So to play the lottery is okay. One dollar. According to Rav Kanievsky, one dollar maximum. One dollar maximum. Some say two dollars. But that's it. Um, so here, he's not telling you that, listen, all of a sudden, you're going to start hating money. And liking Torah. No, no, he's telling you, you're going to actually like these sins that you're making. You like the non-Jewish girlfriend, the non-Jewish boyfriend, you like the shrimp, you like the pig. All of those things you like, you still have to stop. Because they're bad for you. And only a wise man can tell you that. Why is a wise? Why isn't he saying only a rich man? Why isn't he saying only your friend? Why isn't he saying only uh, one of the boys that grew up with you? Why is he saying? Why is he only a wise man? He's not politically correct. Wise man is not politically correct. Wise man meaning wise in Torah. Wise man meaning he's davuk Hashem. He's glued to Hashem. He doesn't care about your money. He doesn't care about your opinion. He doesn't care about your feelings. He cares about your future. He cares about your neshama, even if it hurts you. In the beginning, he knows it's going to benefit you in the long run. So he's telling you, he's going to tell you things that you think are good, but he knows it's bad for you. You just can't see it. You just can't see that it's bad for you because you're in it. You're still taking 
You're still going like this every day. You're still putting it in your arm every day. You think it's good for you to put the needle in. You don't realize that it's bad for you. Like, yeah, I only suffer for eight hours. Yeah, for what? For five minutes pleasure? You suffer for eight hours, five minutes pleasure, and you're not only suffering for eight hours. The rest of your day is jacked. The rest of your day is all gone. You're stealing money from your mom. You're stealing money from your wife. You don't see your kids. It's not just eight hours. And for what? But you don't see it because you're blind. You don't even know you're sick. Finally, you realize you're sick. Listen to the wise man. Listen to the wise man because the wise man is going to tell you what Hashem said. Without thinking about noise, you're going to give tzedakah, not give tzedakah, is this, is that. But the wise man only gets wise over time after you do tshuva. You stop doing all the bad things. You're going to have to grow. The same one that got you out of Gehenom now has to get you to Gan Eden. You can't get there by yourself. You can't just say, okay, listen, I didn't abort my kid because the wise man told me not to have an abortion because it's 100% murder. At 40 days old, the kid is 100% alive. For anyone who doesn't know, for anyone who doesn't believe, you can look at it scientifically, you can look at it spiritually, whatever way you want to look at it. At 40 days old, there's a heartbeat. It's a hundred percent a neshama, it's a hundred percent a living human being. Having an abortion is a hundred percent murder. No questions asked. It's murder. I don't care where it came from. Not allowed in Judaism. Only way that abortion is, is allowed is if it puts the mother's life at risk. If she's at risk to die, then abortion may be permitted or is permitted. But other than that, if it's just inconvenient, or it's just a, I don't know, she was raped, or it's, it's something, she doesn't want it, or whatever it is, not allowed. Not allowed. It's murder. Is wasting sleep like abortion? Not to the same extent. Um, seed wasting, seed, wasting seed, actually, but mezid is worse. Wasting seed is worse, because abortion is murder. You get, to, you get tried for murder. But wasting seed is murdering many. And according to Rashid Chochmah, Masechet Gehenom, it says that the ones that waste seed, Bemezid, meaning on purpose, with a plan, they go to the seventh level of Gehenom and don't leave. Whereas the abortion is murder. So it goes to a Gehenom, but not they eventually, eventually ends. But nonetheless, the point is that someone that thinks that Making an abortion is okay. It's not okay. I understand it's not convenient for you to have this kid. I understand you think you can't afford it. Or you know you can't afford it as if you're the one making the money in the world, not Hashem. I understand all the, thing, all the excuses in the world. I understand. Trust me, I have both Hashem. Plenty of people that come to me with this argument. Every day somebody new wants to murder. Every day. Every Every day. I'm not joking. It's not even. It's a very, very difficult issue. Very difficult because people have no concept of what birth is. Because the media has made people think that having an abortion is like not really a big deal. It's like they call it in Hebrew apala. Apala means like it fell. Like it just fell. Like you know, like you dropped a coin. Like yeah, you dropped a coin. Okay, so you can leave the coin on the street. It's a penny. Somebody else will pick it up. Apala. It's a big deal. Don't realize you just murdered somebody. If you look actually at the pictures in the book that I gave you guys, 
I think all of you got the book, the Torah and Science book, the, by, by Rabbi Zemir Cohen. It has a section about the development of a baby. And you see, at 40 days, hands, and his arms, hands, fingers, toes, legs, face, eyes, ears, everything. It's a fully grown baby, just really, really small. And anyone that, uh, as I said, I think in last week's year, or a couple of weeks ago, somebody asked me about Gehenom, I said, anyone that wants to know about Gehenom, watch abortion videos. It's the most horrific thing you'll ever watch. If that's the best case scenario of Gehenom. So, people that get themselves out of this Gehenom, because of this wise man, because of somebody that got them out of this, somebody knows Torah, told them the truth, listen, now... Okay, I'm out of Gehenom. But it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to go to Gan Eden. You have to learn how to get to Gan Eden. Gan Eden means you can't just not sin only. You have to start doing mitzvot. What mitzvot do I do? Got to start learning, my friend. Got to start coming to Shiloh Torah. Got to watch Shiloh Torah. Got to read books. Got to do something about it. You can't just be a Shomer Shabbat because you sleep all day and that's it, you're a tzaddik, you're going to Gan Eden. Anyone that thinks that is delusional. You have to... Continue. And he finishes his chapter 3 with a line and says, The path of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know over what they will stumble. The craft of curing souls is described in the fourth chapter. And he says here, In order for someone, in chapter 4, I'm going to sum it up because this is a... Uh, um, very, very extensive, very deep chapter. It says, in order for someone to develop good conduct, good midot, they have to develop a balance between two extremes. One that's favorable and one that's unfavorable. Meaning if you're excess in one, it's not good. Excess, if it's excess in something that supposedly is favorable, too much of it is not good. Too much of something that's not favorable, also not good. You have to have a balance. So he gives some examples. The opposite of being gluttonous is lack of desire at all. Like having no desire and then having too much desire. You have too much desire, you eat non-stop, you're going to be 550 pounds. You have no desire, you're going to, become, you're going to start repulsing things, become bulimic, anorexic, or whatever other disease they have these days. Start throwing up every time you eat. That's also not good. What's the balance? Middle. You're a gluttonous person, everything you see you want to buy? It's not good. You don't like anything, you're going to treat yourself, you look like a homeless person? Also not good. So, middle. Generosity is the median between stinginess and profligacy. One person is stingy, cheap, is scared, to, uh, is scared to go to the bathroom so he doesn't have to eat again. He doesn't have to buy a sandwich. <laughs> That's what my father used to say that when we were kids. Somebody that's cheap is like a disease. So he doesn't want to go to the bathroom because so, he has to buy a sandwich again. That's old school Israeli jokes. 
So somebody that's stingy, he's scared. He's a poor guy. He's, he's scared. He's scared to spend money. But on the other hand, if somebody is too large, too generous, he's not generous, he's a fool. He comes to the bar, everybody says, yeah, yeah, it's on him. And he says, yeah, yeah, it's on me. Put it on my tab. Put it on my tab. He pays for everybody like an idiot. For what? What are you paying everybody? What are you showing off for? You think they're going to remember you tomorrow? You're just a local sucker. Nobody cares about you. What are you paying for everybody for? Think they care about you? They like you? They're going to do your favor back? They're going to buy something for you? Not be them. I know this from experience. Don't even look at you twice. You call them for a uh, for a favor. I'm sorry, I'm really busy. Click. Uh, what are you doing? What's what's what's, what's so here? So being generous means you're in the middle. It means you have some brain behind your actions of money. Good naturedness is the medium between aggressiveness and shyness. You have to be good natured, mild mannered, calm demeanor. But you can't be to the point where you're overly aggressive. That's one extreme where everybody, hey, how are you? You're like in their face. <laughs> oh, 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 buddy, hey. I don't, I don't need your profile picture in my face. Relax. Three steps away. Personally, I, you know, it's I have I have a, I have a thing with that. I, I don't generally like when people touch me. Uh, I don't know. People like to touch, and they're very touchy feely. I have this little tikkun. People always like to hug me. I, I don't really like it. And uh, so people are like, I don't know, it's odd for me. So I, sometimes you have aggressive people. Like when they see you, they hug you. Like you're like, it's like smack you on the back. Hey, yeah. you want instead of saying hi to you, I want to punch him in the face instead. You know, so yeah, so people are aggressive, they're very like, ah. Or on the other hand, you have this little meek person, shy, he's like hiding in his own shell. It's like, hey, how are you? Come in, have a seat. He's like, eh. he doesn't want to move. Have a seat, man, have a seat. It's okay, you don't have to sit on the floor. There's snuff seats. Uh, what, what? You're not showing, as a humble, it's something wrong with him. Have a seat, sit down, that's it. You don't have to, uh, five hours they knock on the door. What knock on it? says on the sign, on the door. Don't knock on the door. Come into the shoe. No, he wants to show manners. He shows manners, but it gets to the point where it's lack of manners. Instead, so what's the, what's the middle? Middle is good naturedness. Be balanced. Don't jump on everybody every time you see them. And don't be knee. Don't be that either. Feel like a normal person. So this Rambam is telling you all these different midot, middle ground, middle ground, middle ground. Now he says one of my favorite parts. Now he says one of my favorite parts. He says, I, I, Many people err with regard to these forms of conduct thinking that either the extremes either of the extremes are desirable for example when they see a rash individual who is willing to risk danger who enters a perilous situation on the chance that he will be able to escape they see one of these heroes these uh, illusionists one of these magicians or whatever they call themselves putting their life at risk the guy goes 
and uh, walks on a cord between mountains or puts himself in some box in the middle of the ocean and he can get out of the straitjacket and all that stuff. They praise him and call this courage. Wow, what a gibol. What a courageous person for doing that. And there are others who designate the insensitive, somebody that's insensitive, somebody that doesn't care about anybody. People are dying next to him, he doesn't care. They think, no, he's just patient, he's waiting for Hashem to show us, you know, why this is for the good too. No, he's just insensitive, he just doesn't care about anybody. Or the indolent, as self-content, somebody doesn't do anything, he's just happy with the situation. No, he's just lazy and he's, he doesn't care about anything. Similarly, they might refer to a person who is frigid as passionless, by nature as restrained. Also, this mistaken approach might consider lavishness as boastfulness and praiseworthy conduct. This is all an error. So now, why, why, so he's mentioning all of these details, and then in the Fourth chapter he continues here. The pious, sometimes you see that the righteous people of the past, and even sometimes in current generation, we don't have anywhere near as many in our generation as there were in the past, whether it be the sages in the Gemara that uh, talk about how they fasted for months at a time. Or stories like the uh, Rabbi Kuli, who wrote the uh, Ma'am Loez, would start with uh, fast from week to week, from Moshe Shabbat to Friday, before he would, and the whole week he would study Torah and write his uh, series, Ma'am Loez, a very famous series. Or the Baba Sali, which was more modest than any Rabbanit in the world, would constantly do different fasts and different things. Or you see different. Uh, Stories about the sages used to go to Mikveh that was very, very cold. Or you see stories about how some of these sages were going to the woods and pray to Hashem. And they called it Ibudadut. Not eat meat. Not eat this, not eat that. Put their bodies in hardship. You hear all these stories. The reason why he says, and obviously he's one of them, this is the Rambam we're talking about, not some, uh, not, I didn't write this book. It's easier to return from a lack of desire to the median of restraint than to return from an overindulgence to restraint. Therefore, we will instruct the overindulgent to repeat acts that show lack of desire more frequent than it is necessary for a person who lacks desire to perform acts of indulgence. Similarly, we will instruct the timid to act rashly, more frequently than the rash to act timidly. And I'm skipping a little bit. It says, For this reason the pious, Tzadikim, 
would not necessarily direct their character traits to the median, but rather bend it slightly to the direction of excess or deficiency as a safeguard. Meaning, the a pious person who's trying to develop his who developed his character trait knew that he has a huge desire for, let's say, food. He has a big desire for food. So what did he do? To develop that character trait against food, he didn't just like start eating moderately. He would go to the extreme and start fasting. Why? Because I could fast for a while, get used to the fasting, so then when I normalize, I'm not going all the way back to being a hog again. I'm just eating normal. It's much easier to go from that extreme left, you know, fasting nonstop to a normal than from going directly from eating too much to eating normal. Understand? You follow me? The difference between them is what he says here, this is in Ilchot Deot, 1.5, the difference between them, the pious he's talking about, is that the deviation of the pious is carefully calculated with the intent of refining his personality. The pious, at Sadiq, he's been studying to for 15, 20 years already. He didn't just do tshuva last week. He just, he's, he just learned Chumash for the first time last year. He just covered the Chumash first time last year. All of a sudden, he's uh, fasting. He's going to uh, you know, uh, Uman and he's fasting the whole trip. No, it's a person that's already glued to the Torah. He learned Gemara, he covered the entire Shas, he covered the Shuchan Aruch, he covered everything. Now it's time for him to make himself, perfect himself. She said, this person is working on these midot, he's going to the extreme left because it's calculated, it's time to get to that point. He knows the purpose behind it. He's not just saying, listen, I shouldn't eat because Hashem doesn't want me to eat. Yeah, no, actually Hashem does want you to eat. He put food in the world so you could eat. So he doesn't know this, so the guy that's new doesn't actually know why he's doing what he's doing. He doesn't know why... Uh, Baal Shem Tov went to the woods and uh, did it with a dude. He doesn't even know what Eid Buddha Dude means, actually. Most people don't actually know what Eid Buddha Dude is. Eid Buddha Dude is not just going into the middle of the woods, by the way, and just praying to Hashem, Hashem, give me a building, Hashem, give me a car, Hashem, a watch too. I actually saw this Patek Philippe is 37,000. That'd be nice, Hashem. Hashem, I did Kachma on Amita last night. Maybe a ring also. That's not what Idbodidut is. The highest level of Idbodidut, so anyone that wants to do it should know. The highest level of Idbodidut is learning with Ta'anit Dibur. Learning Torah without talking. For hours at a time. Because the highest level of connecting to Hashem is learning His Torah. It's talking to Him through His Torah. If you're learning math, if you're just sitting there in the middle of the woods, you're just looking at the uh, ocean or you're looking at the mountains, that's not even what to do to my friend. Oh, wow. Look at the mountains. Look at the birds. No, you're just enjoying Hashem's creation. That's not even what to do. Ibudu is talking to Hashem, connecting to Him. Yes, of course, you can pray. You can talk to Him. But there's levels. Rabbi Nachman from Breslev didn't just sit there and just like talk to Hashem. Hey, Hashem, what's up? How's your weekend? How's your family? What's going on? How's the kids? How's Amisad doing? You know, I saw a few of them. What are they going to talk about? Baseball games? What are you going to talk about? 
He's talking to Hashem through his Torah. He's repeating verses in the Torah. He's going over sugyot, complications in the Torah. What does this Gemara mean? What does this Gemara mean? Give me the insight, Hashem. Give me the... He's not, uh, he's not just talking to him about uh, you know, different rewards that he wants just because he sits in the middle of the woods and doing nothing. So the highest level of Yitbodedut is not just asking Hashem for stuff like he's an ATM machine. It's connecting to him. Through his Torah. So when someone doesn't know this, he says an undeveloped person, underdeveloped person, by contrast, deviates out of a whim, without thought, as a natural response to his fancies, meaning he says, listen, I eat too much. So the tzaddikim, I never really saw too many tzaddikim that are 500 pounds, so maybe I should lose some weight. I have a wife and I'm with her too often. Maybe I shouldn't have. It says in the Torah that if you want to be a Talmud Chacham, you have to lower everything. You have to lower eating, you have to lower uh, the pleasures of life, and lower sex even. So he read this, he doesn't actually understand the Pirkei Avot. So he thinks, you know what, honey, I'm only going to be with you once a year. He's, he's demented. He's not doing what the Torah says. This is what the Rambam says. And this is what the explanation is. As ta- at times, some of the pious have deviated towards the extreme at certain times by fasting. Or giving up sleep at night. You know, people sleep less time. You don't hear that Rabbi Vadya used to uh, sleep two, three hours a night. I mean, you don't hear that he slept eight, ten hours a night. He slept two, three hours. So somebody just started doing tshuva last week. He's like, okay, I could also sleep two, three hours. Yeah, but if you're not going to be functional for the whole day, it's not worth it. So, the pious already trained. He says they're giving up sleep at night. They're refraining from eating meat or drinking wine. Shunning women, wearing coarse wool, or sack and sackcloth. Sometimes you see the tzaddikim; they uh, they really mamash like they're suffering, put themselves in suffering. There's uh, several stories of how the righteous in the past would go into exile, where no one knows them. So all of their kavod that they have in their hometown, that everybody knows them, because back then there's no internet, so you don't know what these tzaddikim look like. The stories of the Oa uh, Chaim. Oh, Chaim, you see his commentary and all the Chumashim made one of the giant sages. He went into exile. They thought he was some homeless guy. They threw him in jail. People didn't know. It's, it's a, so, again, this is not, you know, this is a, uh, sometimes these righteous people would go into exile as a part of their own tikkun of working on themselves and even to uh, repent for the entire nation. Somebody that's brand new can't do this type of stuff. Or it says sometimes they live on mountains, meaning complete solitude, in the desert. These deeds were performed to correct their conduct, or because of the degenerate nature of the people in their city. Meaning they saw that dealing with them, and seeing their deeds impaired their own conduct, and they feared that their character traits will also be corrupted through the relationship with them. Exactly this Mishnah. It says, Distance yourself from a bad neighbor. So somebody had lived in that neighborhood. And he said, wait, listen. This Rasha, I tried helping him do tshuva. Next thing you know, we became friends and he never did tshuva. He gave me a hug every day instead of going with me to Bekneset. He invited me to a non-kosher barbecue instead of coming over for Shabbat. So maybe actually he tainted me. 
Maybe I became a little tainted because of him. Maybe I don't like Shabbat as much anymore. Maybe I desire some of the non-kosher food. Maybe I don't really care about my tefillah as much as I did. I don't go to Nets anymore. I go to the tefillah at 9.30. So these righteous people said, just in case he tainted me, I'm going to go to solitude. I'm going to go to completely, I'm going to the mountains, to the desert, just to clean myself up. So chash v'shalom, all these ashaim, whatever effect they had on me, clean itself up. Can't afford to have this. Therefore they departed from these societies to dwell in the deserts where there are no wicked people. As the prophet says in Jeremiah 9.1, Would that I be granted a lodging place in a desert. Nevertheless, when fools, people are not exactly uh, tzaddikim, they just started or not even started. When fools saw the pious perform the above activities, some guy doesn't know anything, he sees, he heard, that Arizal used to go to a mikveh that's freezing cold. He heard the Baba Sali would eat once a week. He heard this, he heard that. So he's like, oh, okay, so I just did tshuva last week. I, first, I just kept my first Shabbat. I want to go to a freezing cold mikveh. Yeah, but what about the fact that you still have a boyfriend? What about the fact that your girlfriend's not Jewish? Or you have a girlfriend, and you're not married, even if she's Jewish? What about the fact that you're a DJ at uh, non-kosher weddings? What about all that stuff? Forget about the mikveh. It says, when the fool saw the pious perform the above activities, they did not comprehend their intent and thought that the activities were good in their own right. Just going to the mikveh, that makes you a tzaddik. Going to the mikveh makes you a tzaddik. If it's called, extra tzaddik. Going to the uh, kevil, the uh, grave of the Lubavitcher River in Brooklyn, ah, tzaddik, what, two o'clock in the morning you went to the grave? Wow. What a tzaddik you are. Go or you have sometimes people, there's a, there's a um, custom. It's not halacha. It's a custom. A couple of times a year, you study all night. Shavuot uh, is one of the nights that you study all night. You go to Beknesset, people study all night. Sukkot is also another one. So people don't study any Torah the whole year. But they come, they make sure that on Shavuot, they come to the Beknesset... They sleep during the day to make sure they come to the Bikinis and they're up all night as if they're learning but all they do is eating donuts. Oh, tzaddik. Oh, before there's a Brit Milah. There's a Brit Milah. is another custom. There's a Brit Milah. What do people do? They have people at their house and 10, 15, 20 Amarets, people that are ignorant completely, they start, what do they do? They open a book of Zohar and they start reading. No one knows anything, Bechla. No one even keeps Shabbat and they're eating Zohar. Uh, yeah, you read this page, I read that page, I read this page. Learn some Torah, it'll be better for you. Listen to the Torah, it'll be better for you. Stop with these gulot, with these things, you have no idea what they mean. At least if you're going to do it, know what it means. Don't study all night. Divide that 12 hours you're going to study all night at the Beknesset twice a year. Divide it throughout the entire year. At least you learn some Torah the whole year. Learn five minutes a day. Don't learn the whole night. Don't do anybody any favors. That's the thing. People look, they say, no, no. You study all night, you're a tzaddik. You go to mikveh, you're a tzaddik. 
You go to Uman, you're a tzaddik. You go to Lubavitcher, every uh, grave, you're a tzaddik. It's nonsense. It's complete nonsense. And this is what the Rambam is telling you here. They began to emulate the behavior of the pious, thinking that through this, they would become like them. Arizal went to a freezing cold mikveh. If I go, I'll be like the Rizal. If you could be a shoe, that's already a dagah. That's already a level for you. A shoe. If I could be a shoe, it's a level for me. They think that you understand what I'm saying here. So the Rambam is telling you these acts had a, were part of a system. We're part of a thought process. We're part of a lifestyle. They had to graduate to this level after decades. Decades of mesirut nefesh, of self-sacrifice, to get to a point of even allowing themselves to fast. When you're not supposed to fast. With this intent, they began afflicting their bodies through many different types of penance, thinking that they had reached peaks of divine service. They think that they became tzaddikim by doing all of these things. The people that are fools, not the tzaddikim, obviously. And that this brings them close to God. They think that just because they don't eat meat now, all of a sudden they only eat chicken, or they don't eat chicken, they're vegetarians now. They think that they're tzaddikim now, because they wear white on Rosh Hashanah. People wear white on Rosh Hashanah, I think, oh, that's what God wants. So God wants. God wants you to wear white. He cares about your white. The fact that you talk during the tefillah, he doesn't care about. But as long as you wear white, forgives all your sins. Make all the sins in the world, but as long as you give some staka, you're a tzaddik. Nonsense. This thing, as if God were, this is what he says. So they're doing all these self-sacrifices on their body without knowing what they mean. So he says that they think that this brings them close to God as if God were the enemy of the body and desire to destroy it and crush it. Like they're making a listen, God wants you to fast. You think God cares if you fast or not? If he wants you to fast, he would make a world with no food. He'd bring famine to the world. Hey, forced fast. If he doesn't want you to eat, he won't bring food to the world. If he really wants you to fast. If he wants you to be intimate with your wife, he'd kill her. Or he'd chop off that part of your body. Probably better than killing her. She's probably a tzaddikah, not like you. Making crazy alachot uh, in your head. Telling you, this is not what God wants. God doesn't want to destroy the body. He wants to develop your character. Know where you stand. They do not realize this is the final part of it. They do not realize that these deeds are bad. Adding these extra things, stringencies on yourself, when you're not even familiar with the basics. You don't even know what basic is yet, and you're already adding stringencies. Rambam, where all of our lachot come from is the Rambam. Rambam goes to the Shuchan Aruch. He, Rambam obviously took it from the Gemara. Gemara, Rambam, Rambam, Shuchan Aruch. All the Shuchan Aruch pretty much comes from the Rambam. They do not realize that these deeds are bad. That they will lead a person to undesirable character traits. 
It'll make you a repulsed person. And he says that it is a sin. It's not a mitzvah. If your shlom bait, if your shlom bait is being jeopardized because you want to go visit some tzaddik's grave, it's not a mitzvah bechlal. It's a sin. If you're going to create havoc in your house because of some chumrah you want to add to your life, some stringency you want to add to your life, you're not doing anybody any favors. That's not what God wants from you. God wants you to be a normal human being. That's a good quality human being. A Jew. A light to the nations. Keeps the mitzvot. Connects to Hashem on a regular basis. Loves the briot. Loves His creations. Has good manners. Good demeanor. And this is the reason why we learn these mishnayot. This, uh, this, all of these details of Musar, because if we don't understand what the risk is, we're never going to change. If you think that you have a different way, that you could just not have a rabbi and still be okay. You could go to the freezing cold mikveh, even though you're not the Arizal, and you're not even a shoe, and you don't even know what a Mishnah is. You could just make your own rules. He's telling you here, you're going to become a repulsed person. Meaning, you're going to go from being a person that doesn't keep not religious to someone that looks religious to a complete kofel. To a complete heretic. It's not like you're going to go from not religious to looks religious to a tzaddik. No. He's telling you you're going to go from not religious to look religious to someone that's mamash an enemy of Hashem. A machtia rabin. Like you have some people in the world they look like they are tzaddikim, like, wow. Like this person, like Moshe Rabbeinu, is probably jealous from you. The way that they look, with the payas and the beards, and the, all this thing, and sometimes they even give lectures. And as some of them give lectures, and you see, you hear the lectures, I don't know, maybe, maybe they read a Bugs Bunny book and they called the Torah. It's definitely not Torah. It's not the Torah I read. Not the Torah that anyone that I know read. They start making up rules. Start making up conversation. They have a Torah book. There's one guy in particular has a Torah book in front of him all times. There's always a book in front of him. Not one time does he read it. It's always open. But he never reads it. It's all conversation. And he says things that are complete nonsense. And not only nonsense, kfirah, like mamash heresy against the Torah. But he has a fan base of Shemachem because Satan, unfortunately, has a lot of soldiers. It's people... I have no idea. I have no idea the responsibility is to be a public speaker. You're a public speaker. You have to make sure that you're prepared. You know what you're saying. You don't make your own rules. You don't make your own alachot. You have a rabbi. You have leadership. Somebody directing you. Somebody overseeing you. Somebody encouraging you. Somebody judging you. Somebody criticizing you. You can't just think that just because you have a few thousand subscribers, all of a sudden you're the new Mashiach. Rashi and Tosfot at the same time. This is very, very dangerous. Very dangerous place. So, on one hand, he's telling us here, 
Do not associate with the wicked person because it can put you at risk. The Ben Ishchai interprets it differently. He says, distancing the evil from your neighbor rather than distancing yourself from him, help him repent. And in this way you will not fall into the trap of suffering punishment for his fellow's wickedness. One who can bring his friend to repentance, but does not, bears some of the guilt. And here he uses the source, Masechet Bahot, page 10, the, the whole issue of the uh, story of Rabbi Meir Baranes, who had a neighborhood full of avarianim, or full of thugs. They used to bother him every day. And one day he started praying for them to die. And Bruria, his wife, told him, don't pray for them to die. Don't you know? The Hashem hates the sin, not the sinner. So pray for them to stop sinning, not pray for them to not exist. So he prayed for them to stop sinning, and they did tshuva. So the Ben Ishchai, Rabbi Yosef of Baghdad, Rabbi Yosef Chaim of Baghdad, is saying that here when it says, Atitchaber uh, uh, meaning, don't connect to him, but rather have him connect to you in a sense that you help him do tshuva. But, as we talked about earlier, you have to do this with a strategy. You can't just go to the club and think you're going to help everybody do tshuva, leave the club. Only, uh, you know, it's only one in a, in a billion that could actually do that. Like Rav Galinsky, Rav Galinsky, Zechat Tzadik Livacha, is a, uh, was able to go into a club and bring people out of the club. Make them do tshuva, send them to kolel. We go into a club, we're never leaving. Become work there. Workers over there. So, you can't connect and be glued to the, the wicked and thinking, no, 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 I'm going to change them. You have to keep your distance. Want to come for Shabbat? Okay, come for Shabbat, but stay in my house. Stay in my house. If they come to your Shabbat, you tell them stay in my house, and they end up leaving anyway, it's not on your head. They left anyway, it's not. You told them stay in my house. They leave anyway, it's not on your head. But at least you tell them, listen, come to my house, stay in my house, have Shabbat. Come, eat kosher. The guy comes to your house, eats kosher. Five minutes later, he calls you from McDonald's. It's not your problem. It's not, it's not your fault. You tried. But don't go to McDonald's with him and just sit there not eating. Thinking it's okay because I'm not eating, so it's okay. I'm showing him, you know, I'm showing him support. You're not showing him anything. People are going to think the place is kosher because you're sitting there because you have a keep on. You know, they don't know. Maybe I could just take off my keeper. No, you can't take off your keeper. That's another chilul Hashem. Taking off your keeper is chilul Hashem also. Why? Because you're saying that God is optional. If you wear a keeper and all of a sudden you take it off. Saying God is only sometimes, not all the time. He's good in the business because it's convenient. My customers don't mind if I wear a keeper. He's good at home because my wife doesn't mind if I wear a keeper. But at the club with the guys, no, no, God is. Let me take off my keeper. That's chilul Hashem. They have another sin you added to the list of sins. So somebody asked me, what's more important, tzitzit? Or keeper. What do you guys think? Tzitzit. Tzitzit. 
What do you think? Tzitzit in the Torah. It's from the Torah. Keep on. 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 But it's reality also that uh, I've learned as well from rabbis. Um, the difference between the two is how proud you are of being religious. How proud you are of being the son of Hashem or the daughter of Hashem. Obviously, as daughter of Hashem, you don't wear a kippah, but for a woman, it's covering your hair. Now, with tzitzit, you can hide it. You Tuck in, not everybody wears the tzitzit out. So you hide it. You hide it. So, okay, so you're religious, but you're religious alone. Chas v'shalom, you're going to tell your friends that you're religious. Chas v'shalom, your people that work are going to know you're religious. So you can hide You hide your religion. You're not... And I'm assuming, obviously, you live in a normal place where you're allowed to be Jewish. Like, if you live in, like, France, you can't walk around with a kippah anymore because they'll kill you, probably. Mm-hmm. But if you live in America, Bo Hashem, or if you live in Israel, you live in many other places in the world, you're, you're, you could walk around with a kippah with no problem. So I'm not talking about, not referencing those places. If you're at a place where there's no risk to show that you're Jewish, kippah is even more so than tzitzit. And the reason why is because when you wear a kippah, and you actually know what it means, not when you wear a quarter on your head, you wear a quarter in your head, it's better you don't wear anything because you make Judaism look like a joke. The people that wear a quarter on the head, well, leave it in your pocket with a change. No, baseball cap is fine. It's fine, but if it's like one of these small little keepers that's like hanging on the side like you're three years old. <laughs> you know, some guys, like the keeper is like over here. Hey. Yeah, fix your kippah, fix your kippah, wear a normal size kippah. You know what a real kippah is supposed to be, right? Real kippah is supposed to cover everything. You know, see the pictures of Rambam? That's how you're supposed to really cover your head. Supposed to cover the whole thing. That's how a real kippah is. That's what the Muslims Everything the Muslims got, they got from Judaism. They went even more extreme. They went even more extreme, yeah. They, they... In fanatics. But the point is, is that that's when they don't have a rav. You don't have a rav, you become fanatic, you become crazy. <laughs> so, you know, you have people that, uh, you know, are, are wearing these little keepers on the side. No, it's not. I'm talking about a real keeper. You wear a nice black keeper, you look like a respectable person. What's the source though for wearing a keeper? I never heard it. It's respect to Hashem. I mean, there's always, always, there's always been part of a. Uh, of of uh, well, as far as a verse in the Torah, no, not that I know of. Gemara. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely. Yeah, it's covering your head is definitely in the Gemara, sure. But uh, as far as a uh, a uh, no, it's not a chumah. It's covering your head is a sign of respect for Hashem, and it's expected from you. But uh, nonetheless, the uh, no, covering your head, you are obligated. This is hundred percent obligated. You cover your head. Uh, you you listen to this show. Listen. 100% obligated to cover your head and when you cover your head you are showing that you are proud to be Jewish you are recognized that you're Jewish which means you take the responsibility of being a Jew meaning that your actions 
have consequences. It's not that you're just for yourself by yourself. You are part of a nation, meaning that if you are no, you know, shown in public and act in public like an animal, then you are a mark, a bad mark for the entire nation. If you act like a good human being, you're a good mark for the entire nation. Everyone benefits. Everyone benefits or loses because of you. When you wear a keeper and you show the world, I am part of Am Yisrael, then you're showing that your Judaism is part of you. When you don't wear a kippah, then your Judaism is a secret. Your connection to Hashem is also going to be a secret. You're being secret. I don't know. I want everybody to know I have a connection to the master of the world. Why are you so scared of it? Why are you so embarrassed? You're embarrassed of Hashem? You're embarrassed to be a Jew? Somebody told you, listen, I'm going to give you a position. Oh, what position? You're going to be CEO. No, 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 I'm embarrassed. Something wrong with you? The other nations call us the chosen people. Torah calls us the chosen people. You're embarrassed? No, no, I don't, uh, I'm not ready to show my keeper. I'm going to wear a baseball cap. Okay, wear a baseball cap, but I don't know, I don't know what you're so shy about. Oh, maybe a girl's not going to like me. What kind of girl are you looking for? No, I'll change her. She only works at the prostitute club for a little while. She's going to leave. She's only the bartender there. What are you looking for? Why are you so scared about being Jewish? Why are you so scared about showing off that you're Jewish? Why can't you have a kippah that covers your head? Tzitzit, filin, everywhere. What are you so embarrassed of? You're chosen. Everyone looks up to you. You're embarrassed. Reminds me of the joke when there's a, um, a father and a son get a donkey. And first they're both sitting on a donkey. And thinking, hey, you know what? Maybe people are going to look and say, two people sitting on a donkey, poor donkey. Ah, it's not nice. So, the son gets off. So the father says, ah, you know, they're going to say, ah, this father is so vicious, he lets his son walk. And he's sitting on a donkey, relaxing. So, they switch positions. He puts the son on the donkey. And he walks. And the son says, Ah, you see, the son, young, strong, 15, 20 years old son, old man is walking while the son is on a donkey. Ah, it's not nice. So he gets off. Then they put the donkey on their back. And then everybody looks like, look at the two idiots carrying the donkey instead of riding on him. You constantly try to satisfy the world, you end up being the idiot. They became the, they became the donkey, exactly. So now, we understand that being a donkey is not good. So the last part, it says, Do not despair of retribution. It says from Rav and Rabbeinu Yonah, say, one should not look at a successful rasha and say, I will associate with him while fortune smiles at him and I'll abandon him when his luck passes. 
Meaning, listen, he's a rasha, he's cheating people, he's a... Let me go take advantage of it, I'm not a rasha. I'm just, uh, I'm innocent. He's a rasha, but I'm going to just make a few extra dollars. I want to benefit while the... Amazal tzucheklo, you know, he's having good fortune. But whenever his uh, luck passes, I'm going to say, oh, no, no, sorry, buddy. Instead, one should not despair. Ignore the possibility. And retribution will suddenly befall that evil one. For eventually his time will come. Do not be deluded into thinking that the divine retribution will occur only later in the world to come. Punishment and vengeance may be exacted even in this world. Therefore, do not give up on the certainty of retribution. So here the Rambam is telling us, a lot of people are looking, is Rasha driving a Ferrari on Shabbat? Ah, this big Rasha is... Just bought a $15 million house. How is it? How does this be? It says, don't be jealous of those people and don't think that even if be friends with them is good. Hashem will punish them. And no, 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 okay, so Hashem's going to punish them in the Allah Ababa. But look how they're living here. Right? That's what you say. Okay, Hashem's going to punish them. They're going to go to Gainom, fine. But look how they're living here. He just bought a $15 million house. His wife is 20 years younger than him. He bought a company, he bought this, he has this, he has this. Specifically, this Mishnah is about that. He's saying, no. Don't be, uh, don't um, lose hope in thinking that there's no retribution, there's no punishment in this world and it's only in the next world. Punishment does come in this world. It's just a matter of time. It's just a matter of time. Punishment does come in this world. And you see it in different ways. First and foremost, we need to understand that most of what we see is an illusion. What you see on Facebook is not people's real life. They just show you the good parts. They show you they went on vacation. They don't show you that their husband beats them. They don't show you that they cheated on their husband. They don't show you that the kids are all losers and degenerates. They don't show you that they haven't spoken to their parents in six years and forgot their names. They don't show you they just lost a job. They don't show you that stuff. They show you that they went to Cancun and they were hanging out with a bathing suit. They show you that they went to a wedding. They don't show you the fact that the in-laws on both sides fought almost a fist fight at the end of the night. They just show you the wedding dress. They show you the servings of meat at the wedding. They don't show you that they found out at the end of the night that it was all taref. They don't show you that. Chas v'shalom, they show that on Facebook. They show you the little kid running around playing and so cute. They don't show you they haven't slept three nights because the kid has, uh, you know, has some type of uh, illness or something. He can't sleep, miskin. Little baby can't sleep, has a problem sleeping. Parents can't sleep, kid can't sleep. They don't show you that stuff. They don't post in the middle of Facebook, hey, can't sleep, it's 4 a.m. because my kid won't stop crying. They don't show you that part. Say, oh, I love my kid, look at him playing. Look at him on the truck, yay! That's what they show you, it's an illusion, it's fake. 
also recommended for you to stop looking in, in these fake lives. It's all an illusion. Same thing with television. It's even worse than television. Ever notice that everybody's beautiful on television? Everyone's beautiful. Even the ugly people are beautiful. This is why it's really bad for marriages. The internet is bad for marriages. Anyone that wants to have a solid marriage, disconnect television. Disconnect cable. Disconnect all that stuff. Only thing that goes on that, ta- on that TV, as it says on a big sticker on top, Torah. Meaning we connect it to our channel, or uh, some Torah channel, and you know, my wife or I watch a Shio Torah on it. It's a bigger screen. There's no cable, there's no nothing, there's no movies, and there's no DVD, no nothing. Or my little kid watches her, uh, you know, kid shows, cartoons or something that she has also programmed. You want to have Shlom Bayit? You have to monitor what's in your house. You're going to bring Zonot into your house? Expect uh, marriage to end soon. It's just a reality. So, people have to stop looking at the outside and thinking that just because the guy bought a car, he's happy. Just because he bought a house, he's happy. Just because she has a new job, she's happy. Just because she looks this way, she's happy. It's complete illusion. That's number one. Number two, even more so, even if it looks like they're enjoying themselves, even if it looks like they're going, having a good time, know yourself, the Torah emet, the Torah is the truth, meaning, unless they do tshuva, the time will come and Hashem will punish them. There's no questions about it. It's sad, but it's true. It's sad, but it's true. I give you three different cases of, unfortunately, three people. Three people that made very, very big sins in the last year. Year, year and a half. I know this firsthand. I know the stories. Uh, it's not like I didn't hear this from anybody. Three big sins. All three of them went against Kiruv. One guy went against Kiruv. He got cancer two months later. He was supposed to bring a big, uh, make a big lecture, bring a big rabbi. He's, he got in the way. He got cancer two months later. Baruch Hashem, he's alive, and Bezat Hashem, he'll do tshuva. And hopefully he got the message. But he got cancer two months later. Another guy went against Kiruv. Supposed to, again, big lecture, big this. Three months later, two months later, something like that. Had a kid born. Kid didn't leave the hospital for six months. I don't know if the kid still has problems. Hopefully it doesn't. Hopefully they have a good life and don't suffer for their uh, father's stupidity. But, it's what happens. Another one, Hashem Yachem, was already a sinner. Sinner his whole life, whole family, sin, 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 no connection to Hashem. Somebody looked for his help. Someone very, you know, that's... uh, Helps people, asked him for help. He said no. Had death in the family within a year. Maybe six months later, eight months later, somebody died. So Hashem is going to give each and every one of us an opportunity before He punishes us. He's going to give us an opportunity. He's going to say, Listen, my son, I love you. I created you. I'm going to give you an opportunity before I give you the send you the malach hamavit. 
Because you made a chesed at some point. You gave tzedakah to somebody. You laid tefillin at some point. You ate kosher somewhere. So you planted a seed. You don't even realize what you planted. So I'm going to give you an opportunity. Before I slap you in the face. But remember, I have to slap you at some point. Because I can't have the rest of Am Yisrael continue to look at you and say, Look, this guy is a rasha, and he continues sinning, and Hashem is doing nothing about it. I can't let you continue sinning. Because then this Mishnah can't come true. People are going to be despaired. They're going to see Rashaim continuing to live, prospering, everything is fine. And I say, listen, boy, it's better to be a Rasha then. Look at him. He's got the car, he's got the house, he's got this, he's got that, he's got everything looks wonderful. Better to be a Rasha, Hashem says, it can't be. It cannot be. I must punish you. I must punish you. So that's, again, it's one of the main things that I think is something that can, that can at least give us a, a little bit of insight of divine knowledge. Divine knowledge from Hashem, from the sages, from the Rambam. Shlomo Melech says, Ashrei Adam Efechet Tamid. Happy is the man who is constantly afraid. In Mishlei, Proverbs 28.14. He says that in order for you to steer away from sin, in order for you to understand the risk of being a neighbor of a wicked person, in order for you to understand that you cannot connect to them, cannot connect, associate with the wicked person. They can't make them your friends. If they're your friends, you have to disconnect. Meaning, if you're trying to help them do tshuva, you have to do it strategically. You can't have them continue coming over to your house every single night. It has to be specific nights with a specific plan. Not just come over and, uh, you know, we're going to continue smoking hookah together every night. No, you come over, you already have a shield to already ready of what you're going to watch. You have already a lecturer coming, something. You have a plan. Not just with buddies and we're doing the same thing like old times. Because what's going to happen? Eventually, their Yetzirah is going to infect you. And you're going to fall, Chas Shalom. So if you're trying to do that, you're trying to help people do tshuva, you have to understand it has to be a strategy. This is where the Rav comes also. And don't ever be jealous of a wicked person. Never ever be jealous of a wicked person. Never be jealous of anybody, by the way. Never be jealous of anybody. The only one that you're allowed to be jealous of is a Talmid Chacham. You're jealous of his Torah. That's what Hashem, in essence, Hashem created each one of the Midot, each one of the character each we have, for good. But it could also be used for bad. So the point of, for example, the reason why we have an imagination, is not because we want, Hashem wanted us to become Walt Disney. It's not because he wanted us to create iPhones and iPads and uh, applications. He gave us imagination so we could have an imagination to get, create excuses for righteous people of why what they are doing doesn't look kosher. Kaf If you see a righteous person, 
doing something that's completely like driving on Shabbat. Righteous person, guys, it's a D, guys are got the whole package. He learns Torah, I know he learns Torah, he gives Shurim, he gives this, he's the, you know, it's known righteous person. All of a sudden you see him driving on Shabbat. Hashem gave you imagination for that one day, your whole life. You're using this imagination, but in reality, only reason why you have imagination is for that one day. Create an excuse for him of why he's, why he's violating Shabbat. And how he's not violating Shabbat. So you say, okay, wait a minute. It's a righteous person, but what could possibly be a reason why he's driving on Shabbat? Ah, maybe this pregnant wife or what, pregnant woman from the Kila is taking her to the hospital. It's Pikuach Nefesh. He's allowed to drive on Shabbat. It's mitzvah. Made an excuse for him. Understand? The only reason you have imagination is for that. So, the midot that we have, each and every single one of them, is for a specific reason. Imagination is for that. Um, You have to make sure that everything that you're doing, everything that you have, you're using it for the Ritzon Hashem. You're using it for Hashem's purpose. Now, Shlomo Melech is telling us here that all of these things, staying away from a Shachinra, not getting close to a Rasha, not giving up because we're seeing so many, you know, wicked people prosper, only way you can fulfill all of this is if you have a good foundation full of Yirat Shamaim. You have a good foundation full of fear of Hashem. You fear Hashem, Ashrecha. You fear Hashem, you have the foundation. You don't fear Hashem, you're not going to be able to fulfill any of these things. No fear of Hashem, you can't fulfill anything. Why? You have no fear of Hashem. You start making excuses for yourself. Listen, he's my neighbor. He's not my brother. He's my neighbor. I'm not going to see him. Yeah, but his kids are going to play with yours. I'll tell them not to. Yeah, but he goes to the same places you go to. Okay, so I won't go there. You start creating excuses. What about the your friends that are coming over smoking hookah like you did in old times before you did tshuva? Okay, no, but this time I'm going to have a Sefer Torah open while we're smoking and we'll make it fun. I'll make learning Torah fun. I'll smoke the hookah and give a pasuk from the Torah. But that's not the way you learn Torah though. You have no Yirat Shamayim, you're going to start creating rules. And then lastly, giving up by seeing wicked people prosper. If you have no Yirat Shamayim, you don't even know why you're doing what you're doing. So of course you're going to give up soon. If you have no Yirat Shamayim, that means you're not really doing everything because you fear the Almighty you understand that you're here only to serve Him. You understand that Hashem doesn't work for you. You understand that you work for Him. You understand that even if there was no schar, even if there was no reward whatsoever, you're still obligated to do all of the mitzvot. You understand that all of the mitzvot are commanded on you, even if you're not doing them, even if you're not ready for them. And if Judaism is hard for you, it's not Judaism. What is this like? I think I told you guys the story with the um, suitcase. I tell you guys the story with the suitcase. 
No? There's one, uh, well, in case one of you guys heard it, I'll say it again in case somebody didn't hear it. So one time, there was a uh, businessman came into the office. He said, oh, listen, I left my uh, suitcase at the train station. Go get it for me. Does one of his employees go get it for me? What's it look like? Oh, it's black with a white stripe and a red stripe. It's this big. Okay, no problem. He goes, he comes back, gets to the office, and he sees this worker all the way from across the office, got 10, 15,000 square foot office, and he sees this employee dragging the suitcase. He says, No, no, it's not my suitcase. It's not my suitcase. He's like, ah, ah. He's like, it's not my suitcase. Bring it back. He goes, how do you know it's not your suitcase? It's exactly your description. It's the picture you gave me what your suitcase looks like. This is the suitcase. Got the white stripe, got the red stripe, got the black suitcase. Everything is the same. He goes, yes, the outside is the same. But it's not my suitcase. He goes, how do you know it's not your suitcase? I'm over here, 10,000 square. Well, you became profit? How do you know? He goes, because my suitcase is full of diamonds. So if you were carrying my suitcase, it wouldn't be so heavy. What you're carrying is very heavy, my friend. It cannot be my suitcase. Hashem is telling you, The Torah is not in the sky. It's not far from you. It's not on top of a mountain. You were created to obey it. You were created to follow it. If it's hard for you, it's not my Torah. Because my Torah is diamonds, my friend. My Torah is your natural inclination is to follow it. You created for it. It's what you were made for. Meaning that if it's hard for you, it's only because you didn't follow the instructions because you made your own, you didn't have a rav. You went to the mikveh in the middle of Siberia a week after you started keeping Shabbat. You started doing three hours instead of learning Torah. You started fasting once a week. When you don't even know what a fast is, you have a hard time fasting on Yom Kippur. You're doing things that's not written in my Torah. It's not for you, my friend. My Torah is not hard. My Torah is natural. My Torah is enjoyable. My Torah is beautiful. When you follow my Torah... It's 100% diamonds. When you don't follow my Torah, not only do you get punished for it, but you suffer doing it. Questions? We covered everything. You guys don't have questions. I'm going to shut off the camera. There's going to be 500 Sarah, questions. Uh, this is just curiosity. The rabbi who broke Shabbat to save, uh, the save a life. Yeah. Yes. So is he getting a mitzvah for breaking Shabbat? Yes. Or it's like 100% mitzvah. No, 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 100% mitzvah. Pikuach nefesh, 100% mitzvah. Just like it's a mitzvah, the, the, day, the night of Yom Kippur, before the fast starts, um, it's a mitzvah to eat a lot. Yeah. And they say that someone that eats a lot during that day, it's as if they fasted two days. Yeah, fat people like that. <laughs> they like the mix. Why everybody likes to eat? In New York, everybody likes to eat. But the point is, is that so? So wait. Somebody says, "Wait a minute. If I don't eat that day, am I getting a mitzvah for keeping fast two days? No. You actually get a sin. 
for keeping fast two days because Hashem said only keep it one day. And He told you to eat extra on that day. Pikuach nefesh is a mitzvah. Now if somebody sees somebody drowning and they don't save them because they're in the middle of learning Torah, they don't want to, come on, bitu Torah, I distract my, I'm in the middle of my Gemara, I'm about to finish the Shas, I'm reading a holy uh, Zohar uh, paragraph here, I'm reading, I'm finishing the Shulchan Aruch, okay, let him drown, somebody else will save him. Gemara says that person's shote, a person's crazy, the drunk, that's what shote means, a drunk. Someone learns Torah, but you see somebody drowning, he doesn't save him, he's a shote, he's a drunk, his Torah is, uh, is, is worthless. Because the Torah is not to just learn it. The Torah is to put it into action. It's an instruction set. You know, so if you're not following the Torah, what are you studying then? What are you doing? This is, this is the thing that's mind-boggling to me sometimes when I see people that supposedly know Torah but make some of the biggest sins in Judaism. Like telling people not to listen to certain rabbis. Or telling, uh, you know, just doing, telling people that it's okay to make certain sins. All types of things like that. It's crazy to me. If somebody learned even a week worth of Torah would know, you know, how to do stuff, some stuff like that. But it happens. Unfortunately, Satan pays well. Satan pays very well. Gives a lot of money, a lot of green. And the Satan is, will convince you that once you've already made one sin, might as well continue. You're lost. You're lost. Once you made a uh, you made a sin, you could turn your whole life into a sin. That's what that's the that's the worst part of it about the satan. It tells you that you're a lost cause. So here in this this last part of the Mishnah is saying It's also musar for for ourselves, meaning somebody that makes a sin. The Satan is going to tell him, listen, look, you turn on the phone on Shabbat. You didn't get punished. Your business went well. You made extra money this week. Your wife was happy about it because she was able to get something on Amazon because you were a tzaddik. You made a mitzvah, shlombait. You let her use the phone on Shabbat. You even helped. You pressed the button for her. Tzaddik. Right? Said, Pasha Chavoy, said shlombait, right? Somebody made his own halacha. Look, Hashem didn't punish you. This Mishnah is telling them, beware for all the things that God will call you to account. Meaning, yes, you tainted your soul. You didn't get punished right away. But you will. It's coming. Maybe a week later, a month later, a year later, ten years later, it's coming. You should focus as much as you can on not making sins and doing tshuva. Every day we do vidui. Vidui is an opportunity to do tshuva, serious tshuva every day. Every day we have 24 hours, we need to learn at least a couple of them. Hashem gives you a box of chocolates. Gives you 24, a box of beautiful chocolates from Belgium, kosher, nice, beautiful halav Israel. Gives you a nice box of chocolates. She's got 24 beautiful chocolates. He says, can I have one? Give me one. Give me one. He gave you 24. Give me one chocolate. You're going to say no? You're going to give him one, right? Yeah. If he says, give me another one. I gave you 24. 
Give me another one. You give it to him, right? You're not going to chew one and say, okay, here, take this one. If you're going to give him one already, you're going to give him a full one. A brand new one. Maybe you're even going to give him two. That's what Hashem is asking you for every day. He give you 24 hours. Give him one or two hours. But don't give him one or two hours when you're watching the game in the background, like it's a half-chewed chocolate. Don't give him one or two hours where you're still playing with your phone in the middle of Shul Torah. He doesn't need that half-chewed chocolate. You give him an hour, you give him two hours, give him the whole hour, give him the whole two hours. Shut up, be quiet, learn Torah. Focus on him. Give him the whole chocolate. He gave you 24. Give him one or two. No, it's in the background, Rabbi. It's in the background. I, I listen to him when I go to work. Okay, what about when you're not working? I listen to the game. In the game. But the game, you're focusing it on 100% though. Shiot Torah is in the background, but the game is 100%. The game, if the wife talks, you throw something at her. Shiot Torah, you could have everything happening. It's okay. It's in the background. He asked you for one or two chocolates. Give him one or two chocolates to the whole, complete, with the wrapping on it still. Don't touch it, don't chew it, don't lick it. Give him nice, give you 24. You understand? And just know that just because a Satan gave you, enticed you to make a sin, it doesn't give you the right to continue sinning. It's not the end of the world. You have to get up. You have to continue, but also it's not a license to continue sinning. Because you will have to pay for it. You will have to pay for it. Every single sin you will have to pay for. I will have to pay for it. Everybody has to pay for it. Anyone that calls Hashem Vatran, meaning he just forgets the sins, doesn't care, they chop his meat. In a special dicey way in Gainom. Understand? This is very, very uh, big insult to Hashem. Very big insult to Hashem thinking that He's just going to let it go. So it's very important for us to know listen, okay, I'm working on myself. I'm going to work on myself the right way, with structure, with a plan. I'm not going to do things that are beyond me. I'm not going to act like an animal. I'm going to know that I am responsible for my actions, not only for myself, but also for my nation. I represent God at all times. You put this into your life. And start being proud of who you are. If you, as long as you're still scared or still embarrassed of who you are, then obviously you have a lot of work to do. I'm actually looking for uh, one of those turbans and the thing like Rambam walking around, but I don't think I'm allowed to wear it. I think I'd look like a bubba. Huh? Yeah, Ravadia. Alvaisa be a shoe. Right, it's not a minagava ma'adon. That's the thing. So it's a. It's not a minagava. If I started wearing one of these turbans and the and I'll become one of these babas, people will start giving me a lot of money, though. Yeah, I don't need the money. It's a lot of CDs. Yeah, it's a lot of CDs. Yeah, it's a lot of CDs. Any questions? I heard a lecture about Bitul Torah once. Yes. So you said you can't, you have to stop learning to save someone, but I heard, it says in the Gemara somewhere that you were learning Torah and you went to save someone from drowning, you will be punished for stopping to learn to go save his life. Yeah. Your, your punishment is the, is the fact that you stopped. 
The fact that Hashem gave you that Nisayon means that there's something not 100% about your Torah. If there was something 100%, if your Torah was 100%, nothing will disturb you. wouldn't it. send that guy driving. Right. So there was actually one time, I forget who it was, it may be whoever, Yashiv, uh, one of the big tzaddikim uh, that, uh, in America, in recent generations, um, they uh, came into the kola, it was in New York, come into the uh, kola and they say, Kodarav, Kodarav, please say a prayer, there's a, uh, you know, there's a uh, accident downstairs, a Jewish boy, was hit by a car. He says, no, he's not Jewish. Kodorov became a prophet. He was a Jewish boy. He was a keeper next to him. He goes, he's not Jewish. They went and investigated. and said, no, it's not it's that. The keeper didn't belong to him. The kid that was hit by a car was not Jewish. He was actually chasing a Jewish boy. And a Jewish boy, when he was running away, the keeper fell off. He wanted to beat up the Jewish boy and he got hit by a car. So they came to the Ram, he's like, Kula, how did you want you to become a prophet? How do you know? He goes, there's no way that I sacrifice my entire life, day and night, to learn the Torah and sacrifice everything that I have, everything that I can, to learn Hashem's Torah and He's going to make such a horrible event that one of His children... He's going to die right below me. Or get hurt right below me. Not possible. My Torah, my Torah is pure. I think that Rabbi was Rabbi Moshe Feinstein. Maybe Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, maybe Rabbi Yashtu, I'm not sure. Yeah. It's one of the big, one of the giants. Maybe Rabbi Moshe Feinstein. Maybe. What else? If you, can you sacrifice, I don't know if you can sacrifice your life for your kids or for anyone you don't get to choose who lives and who dies you're not obligated you're not obligated to sacrifice your life for anyone so for example if someone is a soldier uh, soldiers are at war there's a uh, a lot of a uh, problems with the way that uh, the government of Israel runs their army so for example there was a uh, one Jewish soldier that uh, became a prisoner. And the terrorists took him, he became a prisoner. And uh, there's different considerations of sending a mission to go save this one prisoner. According to the Torah, you can't do any of that stuff. Like, what ended up happening is actually they gave, they released a bunch of terrorists. They released like a thousand terrorists from jail. For this one soldier, which is completely not allowed. Why? Because the thousand terrorists are gonna, unfortunately, Hashem not, but unfortunately, gonna end up probably killing a lot more than one soldier. They did kill people. Uh, or, for example, you go and you try to rescue this one soldier, but you're putting six or seven or ten soldiers' lives at risk. There's no, you have no right to do that. His blood is not any better than theirs. Even though it sounds uh, nice, why should we let him suffer? Why should we do this? Yeah, great. But the reality of it is that if you think about it logically, rescue missions are against the Torah. Because, okay, yes, I understand. You want to save one guy. I understand. You want to save two guys. But if you're putting 
15, 20 people's lives at risk for two people. Why? How does it make sense? You're not allowed to do it. Even if you know that you're going to lose a finger, saving somebody, you're not obligated. But what if you, your kids? Mommy, you're not obligated. You can't take a bullet for anybody. What if you want to? You, you want to, you can, but you don't, you're not obligated. There's a difference okay. between, yeah, if, if you're, is it a sin to kill yourself or your kid? No, it's not a sin if you're trying to save your kid's life. If there is a, uh, uh, if it's a guarantee that you'll die, yeah. guarantee that you'll die, it becomes a little bit problematic. Yeah becomes a little bit problematic but uh, but we don't we don't get we don't get that type of tikkun can't take a bullet for anyone uh, yeah I mean it's again it's a unless the only only one that you're allowed to do it for 100% is if it's a tzaddik if it's a talmit chacham if it's a rabbi it's a talmit chacham you're allowed and uh, even encouraged to uh, to die for for him but for an average person why I understand you love him. I understand the emotional aspect of it, but if Hashem didn't want him to die, then he would he would do you know he would do it a different way. If Hashem didn't want this person to die, then you know he doesn't need you to help him. If this person was meant to die, then you know he would die anyway, and you're just throwing yourself in there. And as a matter of fact, this reminds me of a Gemara. Reminds me of a Gemara. It's a very scary Gemara, by the way. But uh, you guys like the scary stuff. Yeah. The Gemara, Masechet Chagigah, page 10. Right, page 10. Hashem wanting to get captured, or you to interrupt Hashem's plans, right? Yeah. Trying to rescue. Scary. He may be doing a sin for a ton of rescue. So, uh, this is what God says. So he says. So Satan comes to uh, one of the tzaddikim and uh, says, "You want to see what I do all day?" Yeah. So he sends one of uh, the Satan sends one of his uh, employees, one of his servants. He says, "Go, bring me the soul of Miriam, the hairdresser. Bring me the soul of Miriam, the hairdresser." So his worker goes and brings him the, the soul, but not of Miriam, the hairdresser. But instead of Miriam, the baker. Bring him the wrong soul. He says, what are you doing? I told you to bring me the, the soul of Miriam, the hairdresser. He goes, oh, I thought you meant the baker. I thought you just meant Miriam. And I thought it was her, this Miriam. So should I bring her back? Should I bring back this soul, back into the Miriam, the hairdresser? And he says, no, if you already brought her, it's fine. Bring the other one too. Hmm. So, so the, uh, 
השם ירחם. So uh, the tzaddik tells him, wait a minute, how could it be? How could you take a soul before it's time? How could you take a soul before it's time? Isn't it, uh, are you allowed to do such a thing? He says, yeah, listen, this other Miriam, she put herself at risk by being, by putting her body into the oven. When she put herself in, at risk, she didn't have enough merits for, uh, for, for her to be saved. So I took her soul. In order for Hashem to save you from a dangerous situation, He's telling you you have to have merit. You can't just say, uh, listen, I, uh, I'm going to you know, walk around in a shooting range because I'm a tzaddik, it's okay. I'm going to walk around in a bad neighborhood because I'm a tzaddik, it's okay. No, 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 my friend, you're not allowed to put yourself at risk. You put yourself at risk, unless you have serious merit, there's no reason for Hashem to save you. And even if you do, you put yourself at risk. It's dangerous. You have to have a lot of merit for that. Now I want to rely on it. So, he says, okay, fine, but you still, she still had years to live. What do you do with those extra years? He says, I give it to a young Talmid Chacham. We give it to a young Talmid Chacham, a young Torah scholar, who's very giving. This is part of the Gemara that's very, very interesting. This is why, why very giving? And why, I mean, why isn't she going to come to you with complaints? Hey, listen, I, uh, I had 20 more years to live. You took my 20 years, I could have done tshuva. I could have uh, kept Shabbat. She had a comment from and complaints. It's true, though. It's not fair. You, okay, so I dipped my head into the, into the oven. Fine, but I still had 20 years according to Hashem's decree I had 20 years to live 30 years to live maybe during those 20 years I would have done tshuva I would have covered my hair I would have uh, kept Shabbat I would have done this I would have done that I would have been a big tzaddikah right so Hashem says this is why we give the neshama the extra years to a righteous scholar but that way you can't complain because all of the mitzvot he's going to do with those 20 years go to your account so that way you can't complain. You can't complain, I would have done this, I would have done this, I would have done I'm making sure that whatever he does, you're going to get. And why does it have to be a giving person? Why does it can't be just a young scholar and that's it? It has to be a giving person, like a generous person. Because when he gets to Shabbat, he's going to tell him, listen, I know you lived 110 years, but the last 20, you're not getting the merit for them. The last 20 is for her. Because we took her out early. You won't complain. You won't complain because it's a generous person. Understand? Everything has a reason. Everything has a reason. Weird? Weird questions are good. You go to a shooting range? I don't even know. I like it. You have nothing to do with your life? No, once in a while. So, like shooting guns is a pleasure. Okay. For some reason. Like all these weird guns. And I'm almost like getting my license for it. Okay. I want to buy like a lot of guns. Because my neighbors, my friends, are all getting guns. They thought because of an election or someone to protect themselves. And I, I like guns myself, so I'm finding an excuse to buy guns. 
I could protect myself when something will happen. Gun protects yourself. Guns is too much. Pure pleasure. A gun is not going to help you in Gogo Magog. That's a desire. Riots, they say the. Trump won, they're burning down the streets already. Couldn't go to downtown Miami if he Yeah, but a gun is not going to help you with, the, with that. So if I have a gun and I could, someone came to, God forbid, do something to me and I stopped him with a gun. Uh-huh. So if I wouldn't have had the gun, would Hashem still send that person my way? If Hashem runs the world, then yeah. So Since Hashem runs the, the world, gun, then yeah. I had that test, right? Hashem is going to give you tests based on your emunah level. Meaning, Hashem is going to, if you say, I believe in Hashem 100%, then Hashem will take care of you 100%. If you say, Hashem, I believe in you at 60%, then Hashem is going to help you 60, 40%. Or 60%. Uh, he's, uh, so if, if you say, listen, I, I believe in Hashem with everything except Panasa. Panasa, I think that I have to cheat a little bit of my business. I have to get some goy to work for me on Shabbat. I have to, you know, you cheat a little bit. You, you, you know, you steal from here, you steal from there. You're not 100% kosher. So all the tests you're going to have are going to be panasa. It's okay, I'm going to help you with everything else except panasa. Because you don't believe in panasa. Panasa, you say, I, Hashem ran out of money, went bankrupt. So all your tests are going to be with panasa. Or Hashem says, listen, you know, you say to Hashem, listen, I trust Hashem with panasa. I trust Hashem with this, I trust with except... Uh, sometimes I date girls that are not 100% kosher. Why, why not kosher? They don't keep Shabbat. They're not exactly the most modest. But I'm going to help them over time. What helped them over time? You're sleeping with them before marriage. What's helping them? How are you helping them? How are you helping them? You're not helping them at all. You're making things worse. You're making things worse. So Hashem's going to, what is Hashem going to do? Hashem's going to send you tests just with women. He's not going to send you tests with Panasa. Panasa is going to give you no problem. Tefillin is not going to be a problem. Keeping Shabbat is not going to be a problem. What's going to be a problem? You're going to have constant women knocking your door. Hey, you want to go out with me? You want to make sins with me? You want this? You want that? Everybody wants to hang out with you. Why? Because that's, that's your emunah stops at that level. So Hashem is going to send you tests based on your emunah level. So if you go walk with a gun, Hashem may test you to use it. If I don't have it, I will never have to use it. I'm not. I don't know Hashem's cheshbonot. Don't put me in a situation. I'm not a prophet. It's good to have it. I'm not a prophet. I'm not a prophet. I'm not even a, you know remotely close to a prophet. But again, have it if you have safek in your emuna. Don't have it if you have a hundred percent emuna. If you have a hundred percent emuna, there's no need to have a gun. If you don't have 100%, well, then have one gun. You don't have to necessarily have an uh, arsenal of guns and be the next Rambo. That, there's no need for that. You can use that money to do Kiruv or, or help people do Tshuva of some kind or, or uh, do something that's useful to, wor- to the world. You know, having an arsenal and being the next commando is not going to help you in life. Not going to help you. What else? Oh, but now that is bothering me. Where is this Gemara? I can't find I it. I read it. I read it. Uh, like a year ago, oh, we killed a man in Miami. Okay. So we think if you are, if so, he had a gun, it would help him. Once the Malach Hamavit comes, my friend. Big rabbi. No gun. No gun. No gun could help. So oh, big rabbi. Miami so what? What's, what's, if you have a gun, you should walk with it to Shul Shabbat. Like for protection. Now the Shul is in Miami. They have security on Shabbat. If you need to walk to Shul with a gun, you should move. <laughs> That's what we learned in the beginning of the shield today. If you need to walk to shoe with a gun, you need to move. Also, anyone that thinks that there's also some batekneset, that I don't know who, who gave them the right to do this, but they have t- 
turned some of the members of the shul into security guards. Yeah. Now, to hire a security guard on Shabbat that has a gun, no problem. You could hire the security guard for safety and so on. If you think there's danger, there's no problem with that. But to turn Jewish people into the into the security guards of the shul, and you know, unless they're not carrying anything, unless you know, it's, it's just. I, I don't know. I, I, I double checked on it before I made a comment. I double checked with you know some big people, and uh, it's not allowed because these people are using walkie-talkies, and they're uh, you know they're they're using electricity for what? There's no if there's a certainty of pikuach nefesh. You're only allowed to violate Shabbat, or in essence, not violate Shabbat, but put Shabbat on hold, if there's a hundred percent certainty of of uh, pikuach nefesh. But being a security guard is safik. It's maybe there's going to be pikuach nefesh. Maybe some terrorist is going to come. Maybe he's not going to come. Most likely, he's not going to come. You know, so you using the walkie-talkie to talk to your friend of, hey, what'd you do this weekend? How was your week? How's this? You're violating Shabbat a hundred percent. Yeah, those old securities uh, have earpieces. Yeah, yeah, they have earpieces. Testing, testing, one, two, three. How are you doing? I'm violating Shabbat. I'm, gonna, you know, being gay home for... Huh? You don't use it or anything. If you have serious pikuach nefesh, if you live in a place that there is serious reason to have it, yes. I mean, there are some there are some major places, there are some major uh, poskim that say you're allowed. But that's different though, especially if you have a, uh, what's called, if you have a uh, eruv. Yeah, you have you have a reason for it, but that's not uh, it's not the same as carrying a phone and using it or uh, you know walkie-talkie or anything like that. It's different. If you have a posek to rely on, a real one, not some local rabbi that will say certain things are okay, they're okay. But uh, as far as uh, I know, in regards to um, the uh, in regards to the security guards on Shabbat. It's a very dangerous issue because it's a uh, when shuls are trying to save money, they hire the kila. They hire some people from the kila to uh, to be the security guards, and they're not allowed to because. Yeah, have a going security guard. You're, you're, that's, there's there's more leniency in regard to that. There's no leniency when it comes to uh, to uh, that. Oh, in the shul? Yeah. Yeah, not allowed to do it. Yeah, not allowed to do it. Yeah, I saw, I saw one of my students, I saw one of my students there, and I told him, and he stopped being a security guard. I saw one, and I told him, and he stopped being a security guard. Uh, listen, it's a, uh, uh, you know, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know what people are thinking. It takes you with me yeah, it's violating Shabbat. It's, it's I heard some like big brothers in Israel, very big. Mm-hmm. That said it's very good that Donald Trump won, that we got saved, and now the Jews are going to have a very good years in Israel. Mm-hmm. Like, I'll show you afterwards. There's actual verse in the Torah that says he's a rule for saying that. Yeah? Yeah, you can't say stuff like so that. I'll show you the rabbis afterwards. Yeah, it could be, but you can't. Well, you can't, you can't, can't rely on any man. Yeah. Can't rely on any man. You can then cannot rely on any man, especially not a president of some uh, foreign nation. See, once he's president, he has no more free choice. Okay, so does that means he's going to be choice for us all the it time? Be bad. It could be he, whatever Hashem wants. Whatever Hashem wants, anyway. 
Yeah, no, it's to say to say that uh, to rely on man is a hundred percent sin. Everybody could be happy, happy, happy. We'll see what happens. Only way to be happy is with Torah. Only way to be happy is with doing with the will of Hashem. Anyone that's not doing the will of Hashem should be worried. There's no uh, Trump. Uh, Trump uh, is a uh, seems like a nice guy. But uh, everybody seems like a nice guy when they're running for president. Huh? You can see the difference between, between what he said he wanted to do, and now after he elected, everything starts changing. I'll tell you something I learned from the smartest woman that I know. No, it's not his choice. I learned something from the smartest woman that I know, my wife. And she told me something a long time ago in the business world. You recruit people. Recruit people, and you don't just recruit losers. You recruit the winners. So a guy works for a different company, and he makes them a lot of money. That's the guy you want. Now, sometimes these guys, you know, the, the key is for them to bring their business, you know, whatever business they have, whatever clients they have, to your company. But sometimes they're not allowed to do it. Sometimes they have a contract with the company. Well, they're not allowed to bring their clients. They have a non-compete. Instead, they sign a contract. I'm going to work and make a certain amount of money. But if I decide to leave, business stays behind. I have to start from scratch. But these people don't care about the agreements. They care about them as much as they care about toilet paper. So they don't listen to the agreements and they steal the business. They steal the business from their previous company. And the new owner is happy about it. What does he care about the old company? My wife, in her wisdom, she says, never hire those types of people. Never hire even all the money you're going to get. Guaranteed to make money off of it. If the guy, if the guy is coming with nothing, it's going to take him a while before he builds the same type of business. If he had a million dollar business, it's going to take him, I don't know, a couple of years to build a million dollar business. So if he brings the million dollar business, day one you're making money. Mm-hmm. If he has problems with the old company, it's his problem. What do you care? You're guaranteed to make money. My wife in her wisdom says, if they do it for you, they will do it to you. If they're willing to steal from somebody for you, they'll eventually steal from you. To give it to somebody else. You understand? So, that's the uh, important lesson that you, we need to understand. Yeah, smart wife. Smart wife, for sure. Smartest woman I know. Smartest, you know, smartest person I know. It's amazing. It's, uh, aside from, uh, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. It's something out of this world. I don't think he's human. Uh, Ephraim is like a malach. It's unbelievable. It's like unbelievable. Does he, he do this type of fast and uh, torturing that he said in uh, Siberia, Mikvah, he doesn't do this type of stuff? Yeah. What's his opinion on it? It's for fools. Hmm. You have to be at a level to even know why you're doing it. No, you can, you can. Listen, there's, you definitely... Listen... In order to study Torah, you definitely have to sacrifice certain things. You have to sacrifice sleep, you have to sacrifice eating, you have to sacrifice intimacy. You have to make major sacrifices, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago. But you have to know your level. 
if you're level A, you just started reading Torah, just get to reading. But if you're one of these people that's a special soul, you're already in the Torah, you're, you're glued to it, and you're trying to finish Masichet Yevamot in one day, which if you tell anybody right now, they say it's not possible. It's not possible. It's too many pages. There's no way you could read Masichet Yevamot in one day. There's no, no way you could read any Masichet one day. But I know somebody that did it. And, but in order to do it, he had to suffer serious, serious pain. He had to be up for 36 hours straight or whatever, or 24 hours straight and, you know, force himself to be up, which means that he had to suffer. I don't need to give you guys the details because it sounds a little bit like Gehenom, but um, it's a special soul, it's a special person. He's at that level. He's, 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 he's you know, he's a superstar. We're trying to get in to be a fan. <laughs> he's a superstar. He's one of the players. You understand? It's a. There's just a. Uh, it's just a different, a different, uh, different world. Can't compare. My Quran is like alive. I want to still sleep my eight hours every night. I want to pray. I don't want to go suffer. I just want to live normal life, but put Torah in it. You know what I'm saying? How much Torah? You want to be Talmud Chacham? Like enough Torah. There's no such thing as enough Torah. Okay, on the limit, let's say. How much? How much? How much is enough? An hour a day. I listen okay. to shoot when I'm driving. How much money do you want? A lot of money. Okay, just like you want money, you should want Torah. As long yeah, as you want, as long as you want money right. more than you want Torah, you don't have enough Torah. I want a million Torah and a million dollars. Could that work? Sure, it could work. But the point is that if you really have a million Torah, you probably don't want the million dollars. Because you don't care with the million dollars. Yeah, don't worry. It's, it's a... Listen, you're allowed to enjoy the world. Hashem created... This is driving me crazy. I can't find this Gemara. Um... I went through the Quran five times already. I can't find it. What's the, uh, the story that I told you guys. I know for sure it's in this Gemara. It's just I don't know. I quoted the huh? No, no, no. It's this Gemara. It's this Gemara. It's, it's within the first ten pages. I have to still sleep eight hours a night, right? I'm saying anyway, I have to sleep two, three hours a night. No, you don't have to sleep two, three hours a night. I don't know how these brothers do it. Like my brothers sleep two, they don't even sleep any function. You start with your level. Start at your level, and you get graduate to higher level. If you want to get the higher level, you get the higher level. You get the higher level. You do what you got to do, but you can't. Uh, you can't jump. You can't jump. Also, with anything that you're doing, do everything in modesty. So, if it's let's say, for example, you know, some people like to, you know, retailing. So I remember when I first started doing tshuva, I um, I retailing, retailing every day. And I'd read it for like two hours, three hours. I'd read it and I'd read it and I'd cry and I'd read it 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 and I'd read it. And eventually it was just too much. Like I wanted to do other stuff. I had the rest of my life, so I lowered it. But when you go from three hours to like a half hour, which is all the time you have, you feel like you're not doing it. You feel like, ah, if I can't do three hours, I might as well not do anything. That's what the Yetzirah tells you. So what happens? You went from three hours, you're just dropping it. You're not doing anything now anymore. So that's what happens also 
when you do too much. You have, uh, you know, you go pray. Listen, I'm the guy that prays at shul for two hours. Everybody else prays for a half hour. I pray for two hours. Yes, that's nice if you could sustain it. If you could be, if you are sure that for the rest of your life you can pray for two hours, then pray for two hours. But if you're not sure because you're a beginner, then it's better that you pray for 45 minutes or one hour instead of a half hour than two hours. Because, again, that's more sustainable. That even if you can't sustain it, if you prayed for 45 minutes and you know instead of a half hour, even if you can't sustain it and you go back to a half hour, it's not such a big drop where you feel like, ah, it's like I'm not praying at all. You know, it's the same thing with everything else, whether it's eat, but they do it. Like some people say, I have this one guy comes to my Beknesset and uh, he talks about it, but they do it all the time. And I always want to tell the guy, honestly, I don't know what you're doing, but it's not able to do it because you have zero modesty. You're not listening to anything. You're not, you're like, the guy is, uh, he's, I don't know, it's just has, I don't know, for some reason or another, like there's like modesty is, uh, I guess it needs to be said because Hashem has given me this words to say. So, for some reason or another, men don't think that modesty applies to them. For some reason or another, men do not, they think that modesty only applies to women. And it's completely wrong. Modesty applies to men just as much as it applies to women. So what do I mean by modesty to men? First and foremost, we talked about the whole issue of skinny pants, skinny jeans. Not allowed. It's First of all, it's livush goim. It's what goim wear. Second of all, it's not modest. You're not supposed to show your body parts to the world. Uh, third of all, it looks like Nazi clothes. If you look at, I showed a picture. There's a picture of Nazi pants and uh, and uh, and uh, skinny jeans. The same thing. So that's <laughs> excuse me. And lastly, also, it's bad for reproduction. So that's one. Second thing, as far as the shirts, when people like open up their shirts and like they show half their chest, it's gross. No one wants to see your lion. No one wants to see your body. No one needs to see your body. You don't see Rabbi Vadia walking around with, uh, you know, his, his fur coming out of it. You know, you don't see any, any uh, Rabbi Akiva pictures with his friends on the beach with no shirt on. No one needs to see your body. That's number two. Number three, the people that are thinking that they're making a mitzvah by going to the mikveh. People go to a mitzvah and they go to the mikveh. Okay, going to a mikveh is not a obligation for men. But if you go, it's good. It's good if you go. Especially if you have friends that are sinners, you work, you work in a place that's full of sinners, you should definitely go to the mikveh. How often is up to you. point is you should go. But if you're going to go to the mikveh, and you're going to be one of those guys that walks around naked, like you're in a football locker room, thinking that it's okay because just guys... You are an immodest person and you have to cover yourself. No one wants to see your, your, your body. It's disturbing, it's disgusting, and you should cover yourself. It doesn't matter that there's other, other men. No one wants to see you naked, even if you're a guy. It's not okay. Yes, it's disgusting, it's awful. It's horrendous, I hate it. People need to learn that modesty is not just for women. Cover your body. Go to the mikveh, have a towel right next to the mikveh. Cover yourself. You want to go to the shower? Cover yourself until you're in the shower. 
Like it's it's just it's just it's complete like ridiculous that you even have to say this in this age that people just walk around like we're in Greece. Everybody's naked and it's like first of all also aside from that why are people like it's in a Gemara Masechet Avodah Zarah you're not allowed to talk in a mikveh you're not allowed to talk in a bathroom like people have conversations inside the mikveh area because you know it's a mikveh there's a big pool there's a couple of showers and they treat like a locker room they have conversations hey what are you doing how do you like this mikveh how do you like this kilah what do you think of Parashat Shavua what do you think of Trump what? you're not allowed to have a conversation in those places you could say, you know, somebody says hi, you could nod and say hi and leave, but you're not allowed to carry a conversation. So people have to start learning how to, like, act. You're going to purify yourself, but you're collecting sin at the same time. It's, it's, like, it's like taking a shower in, in, in a bath full of, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, garbage. There's something, you know, so that's why like, sometimes I see there's a couple of people I see, you know, you see them in the mikveh. It's like, I try, I, I try to go, run away. These people are like walking around. They think they're like in, uh, they're like a, uh, I don't know, one of these underwear models. In the, uh, in the Macy's magazine. But without the underwear. <laughs> and it's like a shem and Like, come on, the guy wants to talk to me. Say, hey, what do you think of that? Like, Leave me alone. Like, what are you talking to me? Who wants to see you? Like, you're naked, buddy. Go away. Is he making a sin for disgusting you? I, yeah, don't talk to me, don't look at me, don't touch me. Oh, I had one guy wants to give me a hug in the mikveh. Hey, how are you? Get away from me. First of all, I don't like when people touch me in general. I generally don't like when people touch me. I don't know, I have, I have this thing. No, 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 I'm not, I'm not a clean freak. I just don't like, I, I have a very sensitive body. I had so much pain in my body and so on. I just, in general, I don't, even before that actually, I generally don't like when people touch me. If I, you know, once in a blue, you know, there's a hug I give to the people when it's close, but... But if you're naked, <laughs> who wants to touch you? Who wants to look at you, Bichlal? <laughs> so it's, it's, this, it's, it's awful. And, and guys, I don't know, I know guys, guys feel like it's okay because we're all guys, but it's awful. It's disgusting. It's not modest. Please stop. Please stop. For heaven's sake, stop. It's, it's, just, a, it's, it's just an awful, awful thing. And as a Gemara with Rabban Gamliel, uh, in the Masechet Avodah Zarah, and one of the goyim comes to him and starts asking him questions in the uh, in the shower and like in the uh, bathhouse, and he doesn't answer him. So he said, "How could he not answer?" He asked him a heretical type of question, like a heresy about statues and so on. He says, "No, you're not allowed to talk. Not allowed to talk in a bathhouse." bathhouse. So, number one, if you're going to go make a mitzvah, make a mitzvah. You need give Hashem a chocolate, give him the whole chocolate. Don't chew it. Keep the wrapping on it. Be modest. Act like a human being. Control your desires. Know that if you want something too much, unless it's Torah, it's not good for you. You want women too much, it's not good for you. You want money too much, it's not good for you. You want politics too much? It's not good for you. If you don't want anything at all and you're anti, it's also most likely not good for you. Balance. Balance is key. Balance in general on most things is good. The only thing that balance is not good for is anger. There's no balance in anger. You're not allowed to have anger at all. You have to be extreme. No anger. That's very hard. 
but you have to work on it. So, please, if any of you know anybody or you go to the mikveh, please tell him, tell them to listen to this last part of the shiul, because I don't think anybody else ever talked about it. It's an awful, awful thing that people do and they walk around. Oh, this is the reason why I'll give. So that's the reason I guess Hashem told me to remind me to say this. I always want to say it. I just never think of a time. Like I never think about it during the lectures. Because it's not connected to any shiur. I can never think about it. But apparently today I needed to say it. Do men get rewarded for being modest like the Baba Sadi? 100%. 100%. As a matter of fact, there's a Gemara about it. A Shaul. Shaul HaMelech Matzechet Megillah. Gemara Masechet Megillah says, Why did Shaul... Uh, merit having such righteous descendants because he was modest. Because he was modest. But Shaul Amelech, Shaul Amelech was the first king of Israel. It's a difference. Call a kavot to, uh, you know, a vital we could be even uh, a small token of what Baba Sali was, but you can't really compare Baba Sali to someone from almost 3,000 years ago, King Saul. Uh, king Saul. Uh, it says that King Saul was so righteous that if he was born after King David and he was going to fight King David and King David was the king first and Saul wasn't, Hashem would let King Saul win. That's how, much, that's how righteous he was. He sinned at the end of his life. He made a mistake. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, he uh, still was extremely, extremely modest and extremely, extremely righteous. I noticed that all the righteous people in the Torah, not all, most of them, made a sin by the end of their, their life. Many made a sin at some point in their life. And the many. By the end of their life. Somebody, you know, King Solomon made a sin at the end of, you know, it's not, he didn't make a sin at the end of his life. King Solomon made a sin during his life. It's just that it was noted at the end of his life, at the end of the book, where it says that King Solomon made, uh, you know, did, made a decision that was bad. Where he, uh, it specifically says in the Torah, that he shouldn't have many women and shouldn't have many horses. And he said, listen, I have different level of wisdom. I have divine wisdom. So therefore, I'm different. So I will marry many women and marry a thousand women. Not because he was some crazy person, but because he wanted to bring peace to the world. Now, in order for us to even discuss King Solomon and his sin, we have to understand who King Solomon was. King Solomon was king, Hashem made him the king of the entire planet. No king was ever as powerful as King Solomon, meaning he was king not only of human beings, he was king of animals and the Shadim also, the demons. All the demons, all the beasts, all the birds, everyone obeyed King Solomon. And his wisdom, the, it was so extreme that if you read the Midrashim about his seat, his throne, you'd swear that he knew all the technology that we have today plus more. All the technology that we have today is not even close to what kind of technology he had. To give you an example, his throne... When he would take the, was all gold, huge, huge throne, it was all gold. And had a lion on it, and an eagle, and a bull. So when he take the first step, he would have to say a verse from the Torah. And the, and the wolf also, and these animals would come and they would lift him 
by voice. But they're all gold. They're not like a, uh, they're not an iPhone. They're not plastic and metal. Mm-hmm. They're all 100% gold. And they would come and they would lift him and put him on his seat. And then he would sit and then there would be a, a gold bird. Not a bird that's, you know, some gold on it that he painted in gold. An actual bird that's gold, a dove, would come, would fly, and would put the crown on his head. All from words. All, all controlled somehow. To his, he knew the secret. He knew the secret. So, you read the details of his chair, of his throne. You swear, this guy is... Uh, Steve Jobs couldn't, couldn't even be apply for a job there. How much wisdom he had. And... Uh, there was a uh, paro that tried to steal the chair and uh, he tried going up on the chair he took the first step and since the lion didn't hear the code verse and he stepped there he hit him he hit paro and he made him crippled which paro from Egypt? not the same paro from the times of uh, of Moshe paro of later on yeah every, every one of them is called paro but he became crippled because the lion hit him and uh, broke his back. <laughs> broke his back. Uh, whatever wheelchairs they had back then. So the thing is, though, so when we we can't really judge uh, King Solomon as far as his sin or not sin or anything like that. That's not one thing. Another thing is, it also says in the Gemara Masechet Sanhedrin that uh, they talk about. I think it's page ninety-eight. Uh, they talk about different people that have no share of the world to come. They talk about Bilam has no share of the world to come. Yerovam has no share of the world to come. Achav no, no share of the world. All these different sinners. And they wanted to write, it says in the Gemara, they wanted to write King Solomon. They wanted to write King Solomon. Because he made the sin against the Shem. It says in the book, he made the sin against the Shem because he had too many women. And not that the women were the problem, it was the fact that the women, some of the women continued worshipping idols. They continued, he wasn't able to you know, control them and they continued worshipping idols. So in essence he took part of their sin. He didn't worship idols, Chaz Shalom. He was a big tzaddik. But he's still responsible for part of their sin. Because he didn't listen to what the Torah said. So they said maybe you know, he has no share of the world to come. They wanted to write it. And it says that there was some demut, some image of King David came and said, no, don't write it. And they still wanted to write it. And they only stopped when there was a but call. A heavenly voice from Shemaim says, do not write it. Do not write it. Why? Because King Solomon was a different level. He's a, Hashem gave him wisdom and he did what he did for Shema. He did what he did for Hashem. He didn't, even the, you know, he didn't do anything because he wanted to be with women, chas v'shalom, or because he wanted to show off or anything. He did it because he wanted to bring the Mashiach. He did it because he said, listen, if we have world peace, that qualifies as the Mashiach. It qualifies to bring the Geulah. And he had world, he had world peace. And he built the Beit HaMikdash, and he worshipped Hashem, and he was a genius, and so on. So, to when people say that some of these forefathers we have or sages or anybody sinned they have no idea what they're talking about like when anybody says that King David sinned they're an idiot they're 
They're the lowest, the lowest level of idiocy in the world. Because first of all, if you even know who King David was, if you know even one day, one day of King David achieved more holiness than a generation of people did in, in a lifetime. One of his days. You can't, tell, it's, uh, you can't compare you can't compare their chokhmah, their genius, their mentality, their life, their holiness. can't compare that to anybody in this generation. can't. It's, just, it's not understandable to us. The wisdom of Shlomo HaMelech, you can't explain it. Like I just explained to you guys what his throne was. Can you explain how he did it? But I'm saying, can you explain how he has a, a golden bird flying, putting a crown on his head? You know what? Even with technology today, you can't do it. Even with technology, put your, I don't know, iPhones and iPads and Intel processors inside some bird, you still can't do it. You still can't lift a uh, heavy throne and put it on somebody's head. Automatically. You still can't make it. Even with today's technology. So to even understand his wisdom, we can't. You want to understand him? You want to judge him? You want to judge his level? To understand... I'll give you another story. This story I just heard last week. Oh Hashem. Rav Mazuz just wrote a book. Just published a book. He's one of G'dolei Ador right now. And uh, it's not a common... Uh, he just published a book. There's a lot of different stories in it. And a lot of them are not like unknown stories. Not like unknown, but like not common stories. A lot of people that have a problem with Judaism and stuff, they don't like the rules. They like the food, they like the parties, but they don't like the rules. And a lot of the rules, as we talk about often, is from how the Rambam got it from, you know, consolidated it from the Gemara, and then it became the Shulchan Aruch later on, with Rabbi Yosef Karol. People say, nah, maybe this Rambam is wrong. Eh, maybe this Rambam is, maybe he doesn't know what he's talking about. Maybe he was a this, maybe he was a that. Like people think they're smarter than a Rambam. So I told you guys a story about the uh, Nobel Prize winner that tried challenging the Rambam, right? How he couldn't write a verse like the Rambam could. Did I tell you guys a story? One person saying yes, the rest is saying no. Okay, so I'll tell you that story first, and then I'll finish with the other story, and then we'll finish. I don't remember the story good. So it's good. Okay. So there was one Nobel Prize winner, this generation atheist, doesn't believe in anything, he goes, oh, what are you guys making such a big deal of this Rambam? I can do whatever he did. The rabbis came down and said, yeah, you can't do anything that he did. You can't even write one of the halachot that he wrote like he wrote it. It's like, what's the big deal? He just wrote a sentence, he copied it from somewhere. He goes, no, no, no. He wrote the halachot using divine wisdom, in essence, like Hashem wrote the Torah, where he minimized the letters. To show that you know an issue... You have to explain it in the least amount of words. So, for example, Einstein, Leavdil, but Einstein said, if you can't explain something to a four year old, that means you don't understand it enough. So, the Rambam, he didn't just write the Alachot, he didn't just write the laws, he wrote it in the least amount of words possible where you could understand the entire Alacha from the fewest amount of words. So you say, pick any halakha that you want. And then write all the details of the halakha with the least amount of words. 
pick whatever halacha he wants. So this Nobel Prize winner picked the halacha. He came to them, wrote it, 37 words. They're like, a little lower. A little lower. Lower. Okay, you know what? Got it down to 29 words. Right? A little lower. Months, months he's working on this because you have to put all the details. Can't just like cut this off. Okay, it's okay. Mm-hmm. Can't. You have to put all the details. Broke his head. This is a really smart person. Long story short, I think he got down to about 21 words. 24, 21 words. Okay. There's no way that Rambam wrote the same thing. They open the Rambam. Rambam. Seven words. And it's more detailed than his 24 or 21. You could understand more from the Rambam than you can understand from his. Genius that he had is out of this world. Can't compare it to anything in this generation. So a story that's written in Rabbi Mazu's book. One of the things that uh, Rambam was he, was, he did many things. He says he was so busy, he didn't have time to breathe, he didn't have time to even swallow his own spit. He was so busy. No time to breathe, no time to eat. He said no time to study, even though he wrote all these books. So one of the things that he was, he was the... Uh, head doctor for the king of Egypt. So the king of Egypt liked him a lot and he always wanted to test his wisdom. See how smart he was. So what did they do? They always play chess. This is almost 900 years ago. They play chess. So him and the... Uh, you like the story because it's mystical. They play chess and every time Rambam wins, obviously. But Rambam had good midot. He wrote a whole book about Pirkei Avot, by the way. You wrote Pirkei Avot? He wrote a whole book, this one. Hey, this Shmona uh, Prakim, this eight, uh, eight parts. Uh, part of it also has Pirkei Avot. Commentary on Pirkei Avot from the Rambam. So, phenomenal midot. So, he also knew it's the king. So, right before he got to the checkmate, he got to the check, and then he would flip the table. Oh, I'm sorry. All the... Uh, all the pieces fell off. We have to start all over. Never officially winning. But he won every single time. Until one day the king says, Okay, that's it. Let's put something on the line where you can't do what you're doing. Can't flip the things. No, no, come on, Kodo, you know, it's. No, let's put religion on the line. If you win, I convert to Judaism. If I win, you convert and be a Muslim. He says, no, come on, please, and it's not necessary, no need. He goes, no, I'm making a decree, the king, you have to now. What is he going to do? So they start the game, and the Rambam says, all of a sudden I felt like I have no siyat dishmaya. All of a sudden I felt like every single move I'm making is the wrong move. And it is the wrong move. I'm putting this one in this place, he beats me. I put in this one this way, he beats this one. And I keep losing my pieces. I have no siyata dishmaya. All the way to the point where for the first time ever, the king got to check. Not checkmate, but check. 
which means he's one move away from beating him. Shemilachem Rambam will be forced to convert to Muslim here. And he got to a point where he had check on him. And then at check, all of a sudden, somebody knocks on a uh, king's door. He says, open. And they see some tall, honorable man coming in with a gown. Looks very, very chashu, very important. So I'm suing the Rambam for a hundred zoos. I lent him a hundred zoos and I'm suing him for it. Your Honor. Or Your Highness or whatever it is. The king says, this guy lent you a hundred dollars, a hundred zoos, you don't pay him? It's not like you, Rambam. Rambam says, I don't even know who this guy is. I never saw him. I don't know who he is. I don't know him anything. The king says, you have to go to trial, you have to do this. And the person says, this new important person says, I'm willing to forgive him for the hundred if he swears to me, if he swears to me that he didn't do it. So okay, I swear, no no. I don't believe you. I already took my hundred uh, my hundred zoos. You have to swear to me in my language, so I know you're not playing any tricks on me. And the king says, Rambam, you have to do it. Come on, please, we have to go back to the game. It's not it's not honorable for the king's Doctor to owe somebody a hundred. It's a bad name for the for the for the kinghood. Okay, okay. What's what do you want me to do? Okay. So repeat after me. He starts talking to him in Hebrew. But what is he telling him in Hebrew? Move the horse two places to the right, move the other one three places to the left. Move this one, this position, five to the front, and you won. And he gives him all of the moves of the chess match. And the king doesn't understand, obviously. He doesn't speak Hebrew. He says, okay, and Rambam is surprised. He goes, he makes those moves, and it turns around from the king having check on him, Within three moves, he wins the game. Rambam wins the game. The king is about to tear his hair off. He's like, how is it possible? Just a minute ago, you almost lost. Three moves, you beat me? How? He goes, to tell you the truth, the guy that just came in here, he told me. He goes, what do you mean he told you? The guy that just came in here, that I didn't know, he told me exactly how to beat you. In Hebrew. Find them! I demand you find this person. I don't believe it. I demand you find this person. They looked all over town to find this person. Eventually they found him. They brought him back to, to the king. They say, who are you? He says, my name is Avraham Ibn Ezra. Ibn Ezra. Where are you from? I'm from Spain. When did you come in here? Yesterday. 
When did you leave Spain? Yesterday. How could you make it from Spain to Egypt in one day? And why did you come? He says, I came because I had a dream that they came to me in my dream and they said that a very righteous person by the name of Rambam is going to need my help at this exact moment. And I have to come to help him before he loses a chess match. Okay, so you had this dream, but how did you still, how did you get from Spain to Egypt? Weeks away. Said, oh, I used my uh, Kabbalah knowledge. I came in one in one second. What do you mean you came one second? He goes, I came, I, I did the Kabbalah, and then one second later I was here. The king's like, come on, this is nonsense. And the Rambam says, no, it's not nonsense. It's true. I could do it too. I could do it too, he says. You could do it too. He goes, yeah. He goes, prove it to me. He goes, okay. What do you want me to do? He goes, okay, there's a city... It's three days away. And they have a store. I want you to go to that store and bring me a receipt from that store. Goes, okay, no problem. Poop. Disappears, comes back two minutes later with the receipt of the store. That's the Rambam. That's the Rambam. So when... People are saying, Nah, I don't think the Rambam this. I don't think the Rambam this. I you don't know who the Rambam is, please. You don't know who even Ezra is. You don't know anything. These people were holy. These people were like all the superheroes that you have today. The fake superheroes that you have today are not even a comparison to these people. That sounds like Dr. Strange. Yeah. It's just things, things that are beyond our understanding. We can't, we're not even at the level to understand them completely or even halfwise to understand them. When someone is completely connected to Hashem, Hashem changes nature for them. That's just the reality. This is why every single person that's mentioned by name, every single sage that's mentioned by name in the Gemara was at the level of reviving the dead. Meaning, somebody died, they could bring them back. And many of them, there's many stories in the Gemara where they actually did. They brought them back from the dead. Yeah, bro, like whole tribes, yeah, so on. But the point is that they brought back people back from the dead. So, you know, people get so impressed by inventions and uh, different things. But, like, for example, I posted a a very interesting, very cool video yesterday uh, about uh, this scientist, this Japanese scientist that uh, had his students take the egg out of the shell and put it in a some little uh, clear canister of some kind and then put it in some heating machine that made the egg the, the bird come out anyway even without the shell and you see like how the egg develops you see how like the uh, the bird develops but you see it which is very very cool which by the way I didn't know this until now my wife apparently knew it because like as I told you guys she's the smartest woman I know and the smartest person I know but um, I actually always thought that the bird was the yellow. Like I thought the yellow part turns into the bird. That's what I thought. That's what I thought. That's what I think. No, it's not. It's actually a tiny little white dot. 
on the yellow. The yellow is the food. The dot eats this food and becomes the bird. So I never do this. It's very cool, very interesting. So you see Hashem's creation. Now we know. So people, so somebody made a comment. Said, "Oh, is it? Uh, look at the inventions of mankind. It's not inventions, first of all. Man, man does not create anything. They develop. Mankind does not create anything. Even the cloning and the uh, stem cells and all of that stuff. It's not creation. It's." Development, creation only Hashem can do. You can take nothing and make something out of it. You can make nothing, nothing, and then turn into something. Man can develop. Hashem gave it the ability to develop. We take something that Hashem already gave us, and we can develop and build on it. If He gave us some metals and some plastics, we can put them together and make a phone. You know, He gave us a, uh, you know, a. Uh, an embryo, we could manipulate it and make it into two. Or stimulate it to, to be a certain sex. Instead of male, female, and so on. But we're not, we're not creating anything. Man cannot create. Only God can create. So, I think that we get so impressed with some of this stuff that we forget that if we get impressed on people and how they've discovered Hashem's creation... They've discovered the amazing um, abilities of Hashem's creations that they forget about being amazed at the Creator Himself. Hmm. Okay, yes, the doctor is smart and the scientist is smart and the and uh, this one is smart and everyone's smart. Yeah, yeah, great, but they're they're not even a a, a P in comparison to their Creator. In a sense, so because the Creator also created their own wisdom hmm. to even think of what they want to create or develop. Anything else? Amen.